0: Okay, so this will be day number three, and for today what I want to attempt to do is focus on the miracles of the Master, and I sat down last week to make some notes to see how this would play out, and I'm going to call this probably the Master and His Men and His Miracles, or the Master, His Miracles and His Men, and what I'm going to attempt to do today, Lord willing, is look at... All 30 miracles from the Gospel of Matthew. It won't be done in one sitting, probably three sittings. And I guess if we look at the first ten today, if time allows us, we may get a great blessing. Along the way, I want to try and profile Peter, referred to as the Prince of the Apostles by the Catholic Church. And he's an interesting person to assess because he was probably the oldest out of all of the Apostles. And on top of that, he would receive a lot of blessings. And yet at the same time, he was probably the weakest. Hence why the Lord spent so much time with him. So if we can, let's start today in Matthew chapter 4. And like I say, let's try and read the first 10 miracles today from the Gospel of Matthew. And then later, the next 10. And then finally, the last 10. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Look at verse 18, please. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he saith unto them, Follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. And they straightway left their nets and followed him. So the call is to follow him, and the call is to abandon what they had, which would be a great pitch of one self-righteousness. Look at verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You've got two kingdoms in the Gospels. You've got the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Sometimes they appear to be the same thing. And yet if you drill in a little deeper, you will see that they are not the same. For example, the kingdom of heaven concerns a king and a kingdom. And as such... A king will have miracles, going back to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Whereas the kingdom of God is for us today. We are in the kingdom of God in a spiritual sense. We are rolling with the Lord, according to Ephesians chapter 2. Our spirits have been renewed, regenerated. So we are currently in the kingdom of God, and perhaps spiritually in the kingdom of heaven. But, as I say, the kingdom of heaven will concern a king, a kingdom, and miracles. So 17, the call goes out to repent, change your mind. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now Christ will do miracles like no one else has ever done since or before. And that's good to know. Because when we speak to people in the streets, many times they will try and put Christ on par with, say, Muhammad. Or other religious people. And it's always worth asking such people, well, how many miracles did your guy do? Or how many miracles did your woman do? And can you find any in your so-called holy text? So here you've got Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee, 18. He sees two brothers, blood brothers, Simon called Andrew, and excuse me, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers, fishermen. And he saith unto them, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men." Never mind catching literal fish. You're going to catch spiritual fish. You're going to be soul winners. 20, and they straightway left their nets and followed him. Again, a great picture for repentance. A great picture for service. Stop what you're doing and turn to the Lord in faith. Quit trusting in yourself and start trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Also, it's worth reminding ourselves that one of the reasons why so many miracles are found in scripture would be number one, to affirm the Lord's messianic credentials, and number two, to strengthen his disciples' faith. So they have seen him work, they've been called, and off they go to follow him. Chapter 5 to chapter 8 will consist of Christ on the Sermon of the Mount, preaching to the children of Israel, and explaining to them more about the kingdom of heaven, and what it's all about. And if you get people that... Come along and say that we are currently living in in the kingdom of heaven. Well, then, where are the miracles? Where's the king? Where's the kingdom? It's not here. We're living during the kingdom of God. Go to Matthew chapter 8, please. Matthew chapter 8. And Christ has just finished preaching for three chapters. Up on the Sermon on the Mount. And in Matthew chapter 8, look at verse 1, please. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. That's a great picture, of course, for not just being a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word, he would say to Peter, follow thou me. Don't follow a church, don't follow a ministry, don't follow a minister, follow Christ too. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Now it would make sense, wouldn't it? He just spent three chapters preaching to the children of Israel. He said some pretty tough things. He's spoken about hatred, he's spoken about divorce, he's spoken about lust, he's spoken about uh, forgiving, he's uh, spoken about all sorts of things, which for his audience would have been somewhat of a shock, because like I said last time, back in the first century, rabbis would quote one another. This guy comes along and starts quoting himself. This guy comes along and goes back to the Old Testament and really sharpens it up, which is what Isaiah told us he would do. So it makes sense that after three chapters he's going to start doing some miracles to really affirm his deity look at verse three and jesus put forth his hand and touched him saying i will be thou clean and immediately his leprosy was cleansed that's a great scripture immediately and i've seen these healers over the years and i've been to some of these meetings many years ago when i first got saved and i went maybe two or three times to one particular meeting in the south of uh, england South London, to be precise. And I saw the same people going week after week and sometimes going forward to be healed week after week. And I thought, this is a joke. The scripture speaks about instant healing. And here Christ puts forth his hand and touches a man with leprosy, which in the Old Testament was something that just didn't happen because leprosy was contagious. Christ could have just said, be cleansed, but he wanted to touch the man. And immediately he was cleansed. So this will be the second official public miracle. Go to uh, verse 5, please. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, palsy, grievously tormented. Lord, I am a man in need of help, and I'm a centurion, so I'm a Gentile. I've got a hundred men under my authority. Please come and help my servant out. This is a great picture of a Gentile seeking the Jewish Messiah. And he knows it. My servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Seven. And Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. No ifs or buts, I will come and heal him. Because that's what I've come to do. Technically at this time in the Lord's ministry he was still preaching to the children of Israel. And yet every so often he would be diverted away from them to the Gentiles. Never once would he turn someone down. Never once would he be unable to heal. There will be an account concerning those in Capernaum, which didn't come forward to be healed, because they were self-righteous, but I guarantee you that if you came forward to be healed, he would heal you. No ifs, no buts. Look at verse 8, please. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servants shall be healed. Great picture of humility. It was a tough ministry for the Lord, and we need to remind ourselves about that. He would come, he was told that he would come, and Moses said that he'd be a prophet like unto himself. And Moses struggled for 40 years in the wilderness, and Moses uh, would err, Aaron would err, Miriam would err, and as a result they lost their rewards, they lost their ability to go into the promised land, which pictures those of us which are saved today. That if we don't live a particular way, if we become carnal, dry, or backslidden, we can lose rewards. And the worst case scenario would be to lose our place in the Millennial Kingdom. We're here at this centurion, a remarkable man, so humble. I'm not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof. I'm an unclean Gentile. I've probably killed people over the years. I've been a commander of a hundred men, which I think in the British Army would be the equivalent to a captain. And therefore, it's probably not wise you come into my home. Absolutely incredible. But speak the word only, and my servants shall be healed. Now, verse 3, he puts his hands on a man with leprosy. He doesn't think twice about it. And here, the centurion wants to do the Lord a favor. He wants to help him out. At the same time, he thinks himself, perhaps the Jewish leaders will find fault in this holy rabbi coming into my home. So I want him to be spared such an altercation. Verse 9, if I'm a man under authority, having soldiered unto me, and I say to this man, go, and he goeth, and to another, come, and he cometh, and to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled, and to them that followed, verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. What a shock to the Lord's apostles, who were present, the multitudes that followed him, 8-1, and the centaurian as well. 11, and I say unto you that many shall come from the east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, being the millennial kingdom, of course. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs. The kingdom of heaven isn't just going to be for the Jews. Those that are going to come, or those that will enter, will come from the east and the west, picturing the Gentiles, of course. You can't miss it. This guy is a centurion, verse 5. He's a Gentile. He's come seeking the Jewish Messiah. And he has been rewarded as such. Look at verse 12. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The children of the kingdom, unbelieving Jews, will be cast out. Unbelieving Israelites will be cast out. Unsaved Jews, cast out. Luke 16, 19 to 31. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And that's why it's worth reminding ourselves that salvation is not only in a person not a place and yet on top of that the jews also need to be born again you may be born a jew you may be a practicing jew you may be going to synagogue regularly and where we are currently this week there's a synagogue not far from here a very ugly building and i'm sure that place is filled with jewish men and women and children and yet according to my scripture that isn't going to help them they'll be cast out into outer darkness second death There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Starts at the first death, of course, and goes into the second death. Look at verse 13, please. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so be it done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the self same hour. It's the third miracle. Now, the first miracle is more of a spiritual one, concerning the calling, the anointing of the apostles. The second one would be concerning a man with leprosy, an awful disease. And a third one would be concerning the centurion servant suffering with a palsy or palsy, grievously tormented in great pain, and of course no painkillers back in the first century. Hence, why the Lord was always working. He came to save other people. He came to heal other people. Miracle number four. Look at verse fourteen, please. And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. Mark's account of this is somewhat different. Mark tells us that Peter's house joined hard to the synagogue. And from Mark's account, it speaks about an unclean spirit being delivered from a man in the synagogue. And I think the unclean spirit left the synagogue and found its way into Peter's home. That's my own private view. I may be wrong, but here it speaks about Jesus coming into Peter's house. And he sees Simon Peter's wife's mother sick, laid up in bed and she's suffering with a fever. Of course, Peter was married, had a wife and children. And again, it's worth reminding ourselves about that, because the Church of Rome would have us believe that the popes are all single, don't have children, and therefore priests shouldn't be married with children. Which is somewhat of a joke, because the apostles are all married, maybe apart from John, maybe apart from Paul. The early church leaders from the 2nd and 3rd and 4th century were married with children. Many popes had uh, mistresses and children, Many popes had boyfriends and concubines, and I won't go into further detail. Let's just say they were very uh, active when it came to that particular thing. But the official line is that Peter was a single man, hence why popes today are single. But here, his mother-in-law is sick, suffering with a fever. Look at verse 15. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her. And she arose and ministered unto them. It's the fourth healing. This man was never off duty. He was always working. Look at 16, this is number 5. When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. you got people possessed with devils, demon-possessed. It's evening time. They've come to him, and the cross-reference is back to Mark. He's currently at the house, at the home, probably Simon Peter's home. They'd come knocking at his door, wanting to be healed, wanting to be set free from unclean spirits. And it says how he healed all without exception that were sick. Why? That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, Isaiah, saying, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. So he's a saviour of the world. And for the first century, he was also the great physician. He came to heal people of sicknesses. Now today, if you're saved and not in the best of health, It doesn't necessarily mean that you're not saved or that you had a fellowship with the Lord. Paul would uh, beseech the Lord three times to heal him of his thorn in the flesh. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for thee. Paul would uh, speak about Timothy suffering with ulcers and Trophimus, who was sick unto death. And like I said, over the years and over the weeks and the months, no one came forward to heal such people. So many times sicknesses uh, today are for the glory of the Lord to humble those of us which are saved, and also to be a help to other saved people. And that's what Second Corinthians is all about. Look at verse 23, please. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, and he was asleep. And his disciples came to him, and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye so fearful? O ye of little faith! Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, of course, he's on a literal boat. He is asleep, and he wants to see what's going to happen. He's just come off the mount. As I say, he's healed three, four, five people, and he wants to reinforce his apostle's faith in himself, and, of course, in his ministry. He wants them to know that he is the Messiah. He wants them to know that he has come for a purpose. And this will be the second account of the devil seeking to destroy him, seeking to get him off the beaten track. Like Moses would uh, have to battle the flesh and the devil, like Joshua would have to battle the flesh and the devil, like David would have to battle the flesh and the devil, so too would Christ. But of course Christ's flesh was sinless. This attack, no doubt by the devil, was sent to weaken the disciples faith in the messiah and at the same time to try and get the lord to trust more in his own ability that's why he says i've come to do my father's will not my own look at 27 but the man marveled saying what man of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him so ask yourself this if you follow muhammad or anyone for that matter does your book speak about such miracles does your guru does your leader does your individual do such great miracles as this as far as I know, according to the uh, Britannica Encyclopedia, the miracles of the Lord Jesus Christ are the most from antiquity. No one else comes anywhere near this. 28. And when he was come to the side in the country of the Caucasians, they met him two possessed with devils, coming out to the tombs, exceeding fierce, so that no man might pass by that way. And behold, they cried out, saying, What are we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? And there was a good way off from them, and a herd of swine feeding, or many swine feeding. So the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. And he said unto them, Go. when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea, and perished in the waters. You've got literal pigs, which are unclean to Jews. You've got two demon-possessed men exceeding fierce 28 very powerful very strong so that no man might pass by that way they are hindrance they are nuisance much like the people in oxford we've seen some this week some homeless people some demon possessed and they appear somewhat dangerous i think it's fair to say and in the mornings uh, patrick and enrique go to the station and uh, put some tracks out and there's a chap in the toilets who's homeless who's somewhat of a, th- of a threat, somewhat of a risk, and he's homeless, probably got mental health problems, maybe didn't possess as well, who can say, and the uh, station staff know about him, and the uh, police apparently have been called to ask him to leave. He's a nuisance, he's a threat, he's an irritant, and if you come into contact with people like him, you feel somewhat <coughs> wary, and you are not really sure what's going to happen. They could turn on you, they could attack you, and there have been so many accounts over the years of people like that that have killed you, just stabbed you to death. I thought nothing of it, because in their minds, you are a threat. But there was a story a couple of years ago of a man in South London who was reported to the police for beheading cats. And the call went to the police that this chap was beheading cats. A helicopter was scrambled. A group of police were scrambled. This was uh, South London. And this poor woman, I think she was a Spaniard or an Italian, living in London, was putting a laundry on the line, came across this man, and uh, he smashed down her fence, marched into her garden, and cut her head off. And the police were called. They detained him. But what you weren't told at the time was that the man was a Muslim, doing his jihad, perhaps. What you were told was that he was mentally deranged. He had emotional problems. Well, maybe he did. But if he's a Muslim, then let's say he has form. Let's say his religion has form. Let's say that Muhammad had form, and therefore perhaps he was doing his jihad. 33. And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. What an amazing scripture! When they came to him, they said, Lord, tell us more about the gospel. Tell us more about your ministry. Tell us more about Jehovah. No, they didn't say that. When they came to Jesus, they besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. Get out of here, Jesus. You're bad for business. 2,000 pigs have just been drowned because they were possessed with unclean spirits. You've cost us several thousand pounds. You're bad for business. This is the truth of the matter. That man doesn't seek God. Man doesn't want God. In spite of all these miracles. And this is what, miracle number seven. It hasn't resulted in a mass group of people getting saved. By the time we finish this probably three-part study, you will see some amazing miracles taking place. Healings, resurrections, exorcisms, walking on the water, rebuking seas, putting the devil down. And yet in spite of all that, in spite of all that, the majority of Jews, had no interest in the Lord. In spite of that, Peter would stumble more than once. John and his brother James would want to call fire down from heaven to consume the Samaritans. Thomas would be in doubt, unbelief, be questioning whether or not he's actually risen from the dead. This is a great picture of the integrity of Scripture, and at the same time, it's a great picture of the two natures of the believer. I should just say this as well, that the apostles were saved during the life of the Lord's ministry. I believe that they, they would have received an imputed righteousness. But they weren't born again, I believe, until Acts chapter 1, when the Holy Ghost came upon them. Nobody was born again until Acts chapter 1. That's part of the New Covenant. So technically, although the Gospels are in the New Testament, they're still part of the Old Testament. The New Covenant isn't actually initiated, doesn't actually come into place until the death of the testator so just one more time just want to clarify this if i can to get this as clear as i can the four gospels although they are in the new testament officially are covering the old covenant king kingdom kingdom of heaven christ son of david david was a king had a kingdom christ is a son of david has a kingdom david didn't do miracles per se but jesus did and that's why it's important to get the two kingdoms straight kingdom of heaven gospels kingdom of god the Epistles. That may be one way to understand what we are up against or what we are trying to look at this morning. Let's look at uh, chapter 9. This will be number 8 and we will close. Matthew chapter 9. Look at verse 2, please. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. I like that term, son. Very much a UK expression. Maybe it's used in Europe, I don't know but we say, you know, son, or how are you, son? It's just an affectionate term. But when we think about Isaiah, speaking about the everlasting father concerning Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, of course, is not God the Father, but he's referred to as the everlasting father concerning his relationship with Israel. And here Jesus is around 30, and he's calling out to a man sick on a bed, and he calls him son, which is an interesting term because, as I say, with the age of the Lord and the age of the man, you wonder just how old the man was. But going back to Isaiah, we understand that he is the eternal father, hence why he is calling out to him a son. Be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Remarkable. No one else could make such a statement. No one else could promise such a thing. And that's why he was attacked time after time by the Pharisees. And behold, certain of the scribes said with themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk, but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he rose and departed to his house. Remarkable. Miracle number eight. And of course, as he's doing such miracles, those all around him are envious, (coughs) angry, sniping, And they will ask him later on, where do you get your authority from? Who do you think you are? We know where you came from. You're the son of Mary, a term that the Muslims use about Christ. And yet the term son of Mary is only found once in the four Gospels, Mark chapter 6. We know your father, stepfather, of course. We know your brothers and sisters. We know who you are. But go back to the Old Testament. The prophets came from amongst the people. David would have grown up with Saul's children. All the greats in the Old Testament were born and raised amongst each other they didn't just fall out of heaven so why were they so shocked when christ arrived to do his miracles because the hearts weren't right they were religious of course but not regenerated so we'll hold it there this will be part one like i say and next time lord wouldn't we will return to look at part two and we've still got one two three four five more miracles from chapter nine alone five more miracles And the more you read the scripture, the more you examine the miracles, the more you see just how great the master was. So this will be the end of part one. The master and his miracles and his men. Or the master, his miracles and his men. Title still to be agreed. Okay, so this will be uh, day number four. This will be uh, study number two, looking at the master and his miracles and his men and just a quick footnote from Matthew chapter 4 from verses 12 to 16 it speaks about those in uh, Zabulon and Nephilim so on and so forth that saw a great light people that sat in darkness concerning the Messiah of course and also from Matthew 4 verses 23 to 24 it says how a great multitude followed him from Galilee, Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and Beyond Jordan, he would heal so many people. No one else comes anywhere near him. So, Matthew 4 starts with his first batch of miracles, and I mean public miracles. I mean, miracles that people could see. People were able to see exactly what was going on. They got a blessing from such miracles. And some of those miracles would lead to salvation, others not, which is somewhat of a mystery. But the point is this he was a public messenger, his ministry was very open unlike the Freemasons, which do everything in secret. So Matthew 4 will be the first batch of 30 miracles. We finished yesterday in Matthew chapter 9, and I sat down this morning to review my notes that I made last week. And for Matthew 8 alone, there are six miracles. Matthew 9, another batch of six miracles. But one verse which I didn't uh, read yesterday, which would have concluded uh, the first Eight Batches of Miracles is found in Matthew 9, verse 8. But when the multitude saw it, they marvelled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. Now it says many times that the common people heard him gladly. It was only those from academia, people like from Oxford or Cambridge, Yale, or Harvard that would reject much of what he did. And Paul speaks about that over in First Corinthians, how the Lord has chosen the base sort of the world to confound those which are wise so called the elite so like i say we were able to conclude yesterday in matthew 9 verses 2 to 8 which have given us so far eight miracles let's look at miracle number nine from matthew chapter 9 verse 18 while he spake these things unto them behold there came a certain ruler and worshipped him saying my daughter is even now dead but come and lay thy hand upon her And she shall live. He was worshipped many times. And every so often I get to speak to Muslims. Who like to say to me. Well Jesus never said he was God. Or he never welcomed or encouraged worship. Well that's incorrect. Here you have a ruler. Probably from uh, a local synagogue. In fact I think it's Jairus. From memory. Who has found him. And he's come worshipping him. And he says my daughter is even now dead. But come and lay thy hand upon her. And she shall live. This will be the first Resurrection thus far from the Gospel of Matthew, and like I said yesterday, there are thirty miracles, thirty public miracles, in Matthew alone. Look at nineteen. And Jesus rose and followed him, and so did his disciples. He very much led by example. And when we get to chapter ten, which I would hope will be today, you will see that his apostles are going to be commissioned to do miracles as well, and that will also include Judas Iscariot a good type of the Antichrist. In fact, some dispensationalists believe that Judas will be the Antichrist, but that's slightly problematic. Look at 20. And behold, a woman, which was diseased with an issue of blood 12 years, came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. For she said within herself, If I may but touch his garment, I shall be whole. He's on route to heal this young girl, to resurrect this young girl, and all of a sudden this woman comes out of nowhere. And wants to just touch his clothing. You've got two miracles. Just a verse apart. And as always the Lord is on hand. To take care of such a person. Look at 22. But Jesus turned him about. And when he saw he said daughter. Be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. And the woman was made whole from that hour. Son 9.2 Daughter 9.22 Isaiah chapter 9 again. The eternal father. The mighty God concerning his relationship to Israel. Not necessarily concerning his relationship with the church or with God the Father. Daughter, be a good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. The just shall live by faith. The woman was restored or the woman was made whole from that hour. Straight away. Every time I read these types of miracles, I'm reminded time after time that a miracle would happen straight away without any problem. Without any delay. Look at verse 23, miracle number 10. And when Jesus came into the ruler's house, he saw the minstrels and the people making a noise. He said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. It's hard to think that they would make fun of his account of what he's just told them. But give place, the maid, the young girl, referred to Mark as Tarathakumi, is sleeping which is the same language that Paul mentions over in first Corinthians eleven, how some of you are sleeping, meaning you've died in Christ, you haven't gone to hell, but you've been judged. The sin unto death, like Ananias and Sapphira, from Acts chapter five. The young girl, the maid, the little child, is sleeping, and they laughed him to scorn. twenty five But when the people put forth he went in and took her by the hand, and the maid arose. And the fame hereof went abroad into all that land. There's no doubt that Herod would have known about the Lord's ministry. Pilate would have known about the Lord's ministry. Pilate's wife, Claudia, would go to him around Matthew 26, Matthew 27, and say, have nothing to do with this just man. I've dreamt some heavy things about him throughout the night. That was a warning to Pilate not to crucify the Lord, and yet... The paradox, of course, is that he came to die for the sins of the world. How that marries up in eternity, I don't know. But some people think that Claudia was a closet Christian. Maybe she was. Maybe she was present for Matthew 5 to 8 with the Sermon amount. Maybe she observed the Lord from a distance like Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea. Who knows? But here he's gone in to deal with this young girl, takes her by the hand, and she has been raised from the dead. That's number 10. Verse 27 from chapter 9. And when Jesus departed thence, two blind men followed him, crying and saying, Thou son of David, have mercy on us. It goes back to Deuteronomy 18. The Lord your God will raise up a prophet like unto me, him you shall hear. Moses had the sign gifts. Elijah and Elisha had the sign gifts. As far as I can recall, although David was a priest, a prophet, and a king like Christ, he didn't do any miracles. I may have to correct myself tomorrow, but sitting here this morning, I can't think of any miracles that David would do, nor Solomon. But here, two individuals, two blind men, following him and crying and saying, Thou son of David, very messianic, which goes back to the kingdom of heaven compared to the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God for today is righteousness, holiness, and, and peace in the Holy Ghost, but the kingdom of heaven will be miracles left, right, and center, and here, these two blind men have spotted his deity as well. Thou, Son of David, have mercy on us. 28. When he was come into the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus saith unto them, Believe ye that I am able to do this? They said unto him, Yea, Lord. It's probably fair to say he's drawing their faith from them. He knows that they have faith, but for the benefit of the apostles, for the benefit of the 70, and for the benefit of those that were probably observing this soon-to-be miracle, he's drawing their faith out of them, much like God would do back in the Garden of Eden, Adam, where art thou? And that dialogue that he would have with Cain as well, concerning the death of his brother. 29. Then touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it unto you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus directly charged them, saying, See that? No man know it. But they, when they were departed, spread abroad his fame in all that country. It's very difficult, I guess, to... Receive a miracle such as this and keep it to yourself. And the reason that he didn't want them to broadcast what he was doing was because those that were in such districts were in unbelief. They had rejected him. In fact, you're told over in, uh, I think it's Luke chapter 4, that he was preaching in a synagogue. He's reading from the book of Isaiah. And he says, this day is the gospel preached to you. And he closes the book and it says how they looked upon him really you know, sternly. And the next verse they march him to a cliff top to throw him off. They wanted to kill him. So therefore, because they are in unbelief, because they are part of that category of unbelieving Jews that could not see, could not hear, because their eyes were closed, their hearts were hardened, their ears were sealed, going back to the prophecies from Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Isaiah, they have eyes but they cannot see, they have ears but they cannot hear, so on and so forth, he says, Don't broadcast to people what I've done to you. You had faith to come and be healed. You were healed. I don't want people like um, Caiaphas being made aware of this, or Annas being made aware of this, or Herod being made aware of this. Those men are earmarked for judgment. Those men are earmarked for destruction. Such miracles are just for you, like that old expression, uh, for your eyes only. And here, off they go, broadcasting that a great miracle has just taken place. But the miracles keep coming. Look at verse 32. As they went out, behold, they brought to him a dumb man possessed with a devil, an unclean spirit. When the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, it was never so seen in Israel. And that's true. I think maybe half a dozen people from the Old Testament could do miracles. I've given you a few already. The kings, to the best of my knowledge, couldn't do any miracles. The first king of Israel was Saul. He couldn't do any miracles. David, no, Solomon, Josiah, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Manasseh—all those kings couldn't do miracles. But Elijah could. Elisha could. Samuel? Not sure Samuel could do any miracles. Might be mistaken. But again, as I said this morning, thinking to myself, only a handful of men back in the Old Testament could do miracles. In fact, I'm not even sure Isaiah could do any miracles. He's a great prophet. He would write 66 chapters, but I don't think even Isaiah was a miracle man so they're right what's going on it was never so seen in israel and as always a devil is cast out straight away no ifs or buts no come back tomorrow no say a prayer no give us an offering first this unclean spirit comes out and the miracles just keep on coming and yet in spite of all this people for the most part will kick against it will question it, they will say that he has an unclean spirit, he has been commissioned by Beelzebub, which goes to uh, Mark chapter 3, concerning the unpardonable sin, which thankfully is not relevant for today, and yet every so often I get people asking me, is it possible that I committed the unpardonable sin, and I say no, because Paul would do some pretty wicked things, he would torture people, he would kill people, he would get saved people in synagogues to blaspheme Almighty God, which of course is... Back in the Old Testament, spoken of as being capital punishment. So he got saved. I guess anyone can be saved. Look at 35 from chapter 9. And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching their synagogues, and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Still very much in reference to Israel. Synagogues. Jews. Yes, you've got the centurion. There'll be a few more Gentiles along the way that get a look in which will pitch the New Covenant, and go back to what I said yesterday, the New Testament, although the four Gospels are found in the New Testament, they technically are under the Old Covenant, whereas the New Covenant doesn't really start until the death of the testator. So you're still looking at, in many ways, Old Testament material. Although it's found in the New Testament, technically, doctrinally, it is Old Testament. The Jews are under the law. So we need to be careful when we read the four Gospels to correctly divide the word of truth, to expound from the Gospels, what is relevant for today and what is not. 36, and when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Very much true today. We've been here for, I think, four or five days now and we've seen several collars, several vicars and most have just walked straight past us. Yesterday, Patrick spoke to a man from Preston which is in the north of England, and he is almost at the end of a five-year theological course, and he's going to be uh, ordained in June. Mm. And yet, I said yesterday to Patrick, I wonder what they've taught him over five years. Three people wrote Isaiah. Moses didn't write the first five books. The four Gospels are just copies of each other, referred to as a Q theory. Probably Matthew copied Mark, or Mark copied Matthew. We're not sure if Paul really existed. I mean, they just destroy your faith, these people. And you know, it was put to him that Rome is you know the whore, and the Church of England is a daughter of the whore. that wasn't particularly well received, and it was put to him that he'd be very wise indeed not to be ordained, but of course it also feeds into organized ministry. Yeah. But here you've got such people referred to as sheep, as of course we are going to be referred to from the Gospel of John. Having no shepherd, no leaders. And again, it's very true, isn't it? We look around today, and most people are simply feeding themselves. Most people are doing what they do for themselves. But here the context is Israel. Here the context is the Messiah being a Jew, speaking to the Jews under the law. Almost no doctrinal application for us today. It'd be great to say, wouldn't it, that we can go out and lay hands on people and cast out devils, and yet, I sometimes think to myself, but do these people want to be set free of unclean spirits? There's a well-known Hollywood actor, uh, Denzel Washington, a very well-known Hollywood actor, made a lot of films. And he gave an interview some years ago, and I read a transcript of an interview that he gave, and he said, when I prepare for a new movie, I consult the spirits. And they help me, they guide me into the characters that I'm going to play he wasn't the first to do that. I think Betty Davis, back in the uh, back in the 1940s, would do and that. Joan Crawford. Joan Crawford would do that. A lot of A-star actresses would do that, and actors too. And yet, when you speak to people, you know, on the streets, well, there is no God. Darwin has proved that. Karl Marx has upheld, upheld that. Science has proven it. We're well, going to tell Hollywood that they're obsessed with the devil. They're obsessed with God. <laughs> they make film after film after film about God. These. Darwinists that I mentioned a couple of studies ago have made a lot of money out of writing about God. And yet people say there is no God. Well, if there's no God, why are Hollywood obsessed with God? Why do people use his name as a cuss word? Why is a devil found in so many movies? Don't underestimate the devil. He's incredibly powerful and very real. 36, one more time. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. That's wonderful. Because they fainted. Almost scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. If you speak to the Freemasons, they will tell you, when you get to the, I think it's the Royal Arts degree, that Satan is God and God is Satan. And they really believe that. And that's a pretty frightening thought because if that is the case, it means that we are serving Satan, that all this is just a joke, that people are suffering because it's his goodwill to do so, and therefore we are wasting our time doing this. They get it completely back to front. God is God, Satan is Satan, Jesus was Jesus, and is Jesus, I should say. Look at uh, 37, please. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly really is plenteous, but the labours are few. Pray therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth labourers into his harvest. We can take that for today. That's no problem. And sometimes, you know, people say, Well, I don't, I don't be sent forth into the harvest. You know, it's going to be tough standing on street corners. <laughs> Freezing in the winter, baking in the summer, dealing with apathy. Dealing with indifference. In fact, just yesterday, a guy came over to us from Charlotte, North Carolina. um, And uh, he said he was a Protestant, but he was a big fan of Thomas Aquinas. Very mixed up character. Probably 22, 23. And I said to him, but Aquinas was a mystic. And he sort of gave me a double take uh, when I said that. And I thought, all these people are very comfortable going to church, doing their religion, being part of a system. And yet when you ask them, but what's the plan of salvation? Or do you preach the gospel? Or if you do preach the gospel, what do you tell people? It becomes a very different story altogether. It comes down to this, I suppose. It's easy sitting with other people. It's easy being with like-minded people. But you start going into the streets and speaking to people. It's like uh, somebody once said, talking to God about men is easy, but you try talking to men about God. That's a different ball game <coughs> altogether. So chapter 9 will conclude the second batch of miracles, and again, uh, Matthew chapter eight, we were able to read six miracles. For Matthew nine, we were able to read another six miracles. For Matthew chapter ten, the Lord is about to commission and anoint his apostles to preach the gospel and to heal people as well, which goes back to the kingdom of heaven not being for today. We don't live in the kingdom of heaven. We live in the kingdom of God. You can spiritualize it, of course and say we are spiritually in the kingdom of heaven okay fine but a literal kingdom found here in the gospel of matthew would always involve literal miracles matthew chapter 10 matthew chapter 10 look at verse 1 please when he called unto him his 12 disciples he gave them power against unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all manner of sickness and all manner of disease and like i say that's just what they would do judas would cast out unclean spirits Peter would do so, John would do so, Thomas would do so. And yet by Matthew, excuse me, by um, John chapter 20, Thomas is doubting whether or not Christ has come up from the dead. Matthew 28, it says how some doubted, some still didn't believe. All these miracles, walking with the master, seeing his miracles, and yet that old man is still there. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Look at verse 2. Now the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the Publican, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Labius, or Lebius, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. Every Gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, referred to as the Synoptic Gospels, Always start with Peter and always end with Judas. And I guess it's fair to repeat myself again that Peter was probably the oldest, hence why he goes first, and was probably the weakest as well. Hence why the Lord spent so much time with him. Judas, Ascariot, if you add the letters up, come to 13. Son of perdition. Yes, okay, fine. But again, the thought of Judas being resurrected to become the Antichrist, I think it's problematic. I go back to my earlier thought that it's probably more correct to understand that the unclean spirit that took him over john 13 luke 22 will take over the antichrist in the tribulation five these twelve jesus sent forth and commanded them saying go not into the way of the gentiles and into any city of the samaritans enter ye not but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of israel most of matthew is about israel you can't miss it most of matthew Is about the Jews under the law. Most of Matthew is about the Jewish Messiah coming to keep the law, coming to die for the sins of Israel, and vicariously those of us sitting around this table this morning. Don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Christ is a prophet of prophets, he's the King of kings, Lord of lords, son of David, and he's come explicitly to Preach to the children of Israel, and he wants his apostles to do just that. And that's why, when you speak to people today, you think that they, they have the sign gifts and that they are preaching to Gentiles, they're not going to the Jews, they're not going to Israel, which is what we are reading about this morning, they're going to the Gentile nations, and that is so problematic because, as I say, the sign gifts are evident, supernatural, you can see them, nothing's under in in the corner, nothing's under the secret, it's very open. And it goes back to the Messiah because he's come to witness to them, to die for them. But on top of that, the apostles are going to write the New Testament. They have to have the sign gifts. No sign gifts. They're no different to anyone else in their generation. Go to Matthew chapter 11, please. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. All these miracles, left, right and center. People getting saved. People getting healed. Look at verse 20 from Matthew chapter 11. Then began he to upbraid the cities where most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazon. War unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the day of judgment than for you. Different levels of hell. Different levels of heaven. Because they saw the signs. They heard the preaching. I mean, his words must have cut His words must have really cut into your heart. At the same time, his words must must have really been a blessing, a real healing. But like the scripture says, it can hurt and it can heal. Uh, 23, And now Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For the mighty works which have been done in thee, have been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Had I come back in the Old Testament, had I preached to those in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have received it. And yet, because Capernaum has rejected it, they're going to be punished almost on a greater scale than Sodom. But I say unto you, 24, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom the day of judgment than for thee. It's hard to think, isn't it? You've got Abraham, you've got Lot, you've got the Lord coming down, Christophany, with two angels with him. He speaks to Abraham. Abraham is interceding on behalf of Lot and co. And he says, If I find ten righteous, I will spare the city, Off they go, three people, four people. The wife looks back, becomes a pillar of salt. Lot has to be dragged out, he's carnal. He finds himself in a cave. His two daughters think that mankind has been destroyed from off the earth, like Noah. And then they say to themselves, we need to repopulate with our father. They were messed up, of course. They were warped, going back to their time in Sodom and Gomorrah. But at the same time, I think to myself, I can... Partly understand what was going through their minds. They thought it would be down to them to repopulate the earth. It was still wicked, of course. But the point is this. As bad as that was, and maybe 10 million were destroyed. Maybe 5 million. I'm not sure what the figures would be. It says back in Genesis how it wasn't just Sodom and Gomorrah, but the surrounding cities got destroyed. Let's say 5 million people. That may be a little on the high side, but let's just say 5 million people were destroyed, were burnt up. He's saying here that it shall be more tolerable For the land of Sodom, in the day of judgment, great white throne, of course, than for thee. Concerning 20, 21, 22, 23. That's a frightening thought. But it makes sense, because they saw him, they heard him, they saw the miracles, they heard the gospel preached. They are the chosen race. And yet, going back to Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they had eyes, but they couldn't see. They had ears, but they couldn't hear. The hearts were hardened. It says over in Hebrews how they were dull of hearing. And yet, in spite of all that, people did get saved. The apostles got saved. The apostles would preach the gospel. In fact, if you look at the gospels compared to Acts the Apostles, I think by Acts 15, you got around 20,000 people that are saved, which is quite incredible. And yet, from the gospel period, although thousands would come to be healed, and next time we look at the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000, it would seem that most who came to be healed in the gospels didn't actually get saved, which is somewhat of a mystery, And by Acts chapter 1, you've got around 120 people in the upper room. That's why the Lord said, you'll do greater things in my name, greater in scope. Not only will you write the New Testament, which they did, not only would you uh, travel the Roman Empire, which they would do, but you will be able to reach out to more people, more people will get saved. And that could also go back to what I said yesterday, how the apostles weren't born again until Acts chapter 1. Saved, of course, pre-Acts chapter 1. He will say that I saw Satan fall from heaven. Rejoice, because your name is written in heaven. But they weren't born again as such until Acts chapter 1. So we will close it there. And uh, like I said, this will probably be a three or maybe a four-part study. I don't know. But uh, we are just on the 30-minute mark. So we will close it there from Matthew 11. And I'll just say this very quickly in close, that even with the miracles... And we just read it now, that didn't guarantee repentance, that didn't guarantee a change of life. You would have thought it would do, but it wouldn't. So when people say today, do you speak in tongues, or can you heal people, or do you have the sign gifts? Well, even if you said yes, it doesn't prove anything. Because even here, his own people, Capernaum, rejected it. Because as I say, their hearts were not right. They were part of the group of Israelites, which were more interested in Caesar than Christ. That's what they would say over in uh, Matthew 27 we have caesar as our king we don't want christ and also they would say we shan't have this man to reign over us but by their blindness by their rebellion by their rejection with the the gentiles with the church get grafted in so chapter 10 will feed into the apostles doing miracles and the 14th miracle which we'll look at tomorrow morning lord willing will be from matthew chapter 12 but i think we've said enough for today so we'll close it there and pick it up tomorrow Okay, so continuing on through our look at the Master and his miracles and his men, we are still on day four, and this will be study number three, looking at the Gospel of Matthew, which, as I said from the beginning of this three-part message, there are 30 miracles which are recorded by the Apostle Matthew, who was an eyewitness. He saw the Lord, and he wrote about what he saw, and it's important that we remind ourselves that the writers of the Scriptures were eyewitnesses, Unlike what the uh, Muslims have us believe, that Muhammad dictated the Quran to his daughter and then dictated it to a guy called Uthman, which was then preserved and passed around Arabia. In fact, uh, Muhammad was illiterate, but the writers of the New Testament were eyewitnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, Christ certainly wasn't illiterate. Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, and if you all look at verse 10 please and behold there was a man which had his hand with it and they asked him saying is it lawful to heal on the sabbath days that they might accuse him we had an interesting conversation today a jewish man came over to us probably early 20s very hostile very arrogant very argumentative and it's always disappointing when this happens because we are on the side of the jews we are very pro israel and yet he is a sinner like we are, and it was good to have a conversation with him, although it was somewhat strained and somewhat disappointing. And he told me that David didn't write the Psalms that he he had recently read uh, the Book of Isaiah, and I said to him, "How about Chapter Fifty Three? Who is Isaiah speaking about?" And he said to me, "Can you, you know, can you tell me what it says?" So on a very cold street corner with snow falling, uh, trying to think what <laughs> Isaiah Fifty Three. Uh, speaks about. I gave him a couple of verses, just a blank expression, very argumentative, very difficult chap to speak to. Like I say, we are friends of Israel, we are pro the Jews, we're not Muslims, but this man had great contempt for the New Testament, for the Messiah, and as one of the sisters said, this is what the Lord would have come up against, absolutely true, and Paul would have been the same. But here you've got the Lord once again coming into Correspondents coming into contact, as you say, with Jews who are clashing with him. Time after time, they would clash with him. And his patience never gave out. I know that it was uh, down to me to deal with such people. I'd lose my temper every time. I couldn't handle it. But Christ was so calm, so compassionate. And they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? What a statement! It's one thing to reject him. It's something altogether different to try and find fault, to try and go to the Old Testament, to get something they can use against him. But of course, this is what it's all about, authority. It's about the scripture. They would ask John over in the Gospel of John where he got his authority from. And I think it's found in chapter 1. Four chapters later, he answers the question, not to those that asked, but to his own disciples. He completely bypassed those that were sent to ask him because they weren't of the lord that's why christ says you're not of my father if you're of my father you would receive my words so and so forth the scriptures speak about me but here you have got a man about to receive a blessing and those in the synagogue verse 9 are watching waiting to pounce look at 13 then saith he to the man stretch forth thine hand and he stretched it forth and it was restored whole like as the other that must have really up their noses as we say in the uk must have really wound them up they thought they could find fault with him and he would tell them elsewhere that he was the lord of the sabbath he was the lord of the temple he was greater than solomon he was quite happy to be called the son of david he was quite happy to have people bow down and worship him and i guess one of the greatest miracles which we'll get to shortly was christ walking on the water what a great picture that must have been stretched forth thine hand and he stretched it forth and it was restored whole like as the other And yet time after time, and incidentally this is miracle number 14, it didn't result in anyone from jury, from organised religion, getting saved. This is the truth of the matter. Look at verse 14. The nefariouses went out and held a council against him, how they might destroy him. That term council is a very ugly word. Council of Nicaea, council of Trent, council of Carthage. Just today we stood outside a spot in Oxford where they murdered three anglican bishops ridley latimer and cramner and uh, we put a video together which will be going online shortly uh showing people what that spot looks like and they were murdered 461 years ago next month by the catholic church by the types of people that we're reading about now Pharisees, of course are priests high priests very powerful priests very powerful people very influential completely at odds with God. Terrifying thought. They would have gone to the Oxford of their generation, the Cambridge of their generation, or the equivalent to Yale and Harvard today. Very bright men, great linguists, great scholars, and yet they had no idea that the Messiah was right in the midst. They had no idea that the scripture was being fulfilled right before their eyes. Terrifying thought. And it wasn't bad enough that they would reject him publicly and insult him and call him devil-possessed. They are now plotting to have him put to death. They're going to call a council together, like the Inquisition, like the Crusades. They're going to take whatever is necessary to put this innocent man to death. But, of course, that's what he came to do. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Look at verse 15, please. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and healed them all. This guy was on a mission every single day. He would get up early, sometimes pray all night. We're told that from Luke chapter 6. Feeding people physically, feeding people spiritually, teaching his apostles, love manifesting the flesh, crisscrossing Israel, like walking. No cars in those days, of course. And he's got those men from organized religion plotting. He's got Herod watching him. He's got pilots, secret police watching him. And perhaps there were times when the apostles were somewhat fearful because they knew these high priests that were out for the Lord. In fact, it speaks about John being friendly with the keep of the door that uh, was responsible for the Lord's detention. It's even more fair to say that they probably all grew up together, went to the same school, and perhaps worked together. It's a very tight niche community, a yeah. you know, small group. They all knew each other. But here he's on the move, and yet he's healing all those that come to him without exception and charge them that they should not make him known why that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by isaiah the prophet saying behold my servant whom i have chosen my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased i will put my spirit upon him and he shall show judgment unto the gentiles so israel is partly in the dark here israel is partly under judgment hence why he doesn't want people to broadcast his miracles They've turned him down time after time. It was bad enough that they would take sides with the Gentiles when he was crucified. It was bad enough that they would plot to put the apostles to death. And the early church really did suffer at the hands of the Jews. But here, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, being Isaiah. Behold my servant, my anointed, my elect one, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment unto the Gentiles. That would have really grated with the Jews. The Jews didn't think much of the Gentiles. The Jews saw Gentiles as unclean animals. If you have a dog, and you take your dog into a local park, and there are Muslims in that park playing on swings or just enjoying a nice day out, and your dog's not on a leash, and your dog runs over to a group of Muslims, they will run. They will jump up and down. They will go crazy. Because for them, dogs are unclean animals. They despise them. And it's fair to say, and I will say this, that many Jews from the first century saw Gentiles as unclean animals. In fact, Christ would say that from Matthew chapter 7. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Holy things. And in the context of speaking about non-Jews. And that's where we get the incident with the Canaanite, whose daughter was demon-possessed. We'll get there shortly. And she comes to seek the Lord, she was a Gentile, a Canaanite, and she was begging him to set her daughter free of an unclean spirit. And he says, listen, I haven't come for you. You know, you are only fit to eat the crumbs that fall from the table. What a statement to make. But that's how it was. Gentiles were unclean. I was unclean before I got saved. All of us were unclean until we got saved. The Jews were ceremonially clean, but their hearts weren't clean. They were dead, spiritually dead. And here the prophecy has been given that when the Messiah arrives, Almighty God will put his spirit upon him, make him the Christ, the Christos. 19, he shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. He's not going to be going around calling for a revolution. I remember some years ago doing some street work in Manchester, and a guy came over to me, and he was very upset that I was street preaching, and he put this piece of scripture on me. And he said to me, You shouldn't be street preaching. It says here that. He won't strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice in the streets. I said yes, but the context is being a rebel rouser, causing uh, riots, calling for a revolution like we see in South America and parts of the world. Christ would street preach, Christ would raise his, his, his voice in the streets, the apostles would raise their voices to be heard. How else can people hear the gospel? They twist the scriptures, you see, and they do so because they don't understand the scriptures, like this Jew from today. I said to him, but David spoke about Christ being crucified. He said they pierced my hands and my feet. But David didn't write the Psalms. He said, so of course he did, and went back and forth. And I thought this is going nowhere. It was getting quite tense as well. And he made some crude remark about going to hell with some uh, blanket of some kind. I can't think of what he said now. But I thought to myself, most of my time with this sort of person, don't cast your pearls before swine. And I thought, yeah, I'll cut it short with him. And it's like I said in the past, if a witness starts bad, it normally ends bad. 20. A bruise reed, she not break, and smoking and flax, shall not quench, to send forth judgment on the victory, and in his name to the Gentiles' trust. It's a great scripture. And if Jews could understand that we are pro them, we're not against them, some people might be upset that I've spoken about this Jewish man in such a way. Well, he came pretty hard towards me. You know, He came on, you know, he got in my face somewhat, he was somewhat hostile towards me. And I didn't raise my voice, didn't lose my temper with him, but I was stern with him. Paul says they are beloved for their father's sakes, but for the gospel's sakes, for the gospel's sake, for the sake of the gospel, they are enemies. It's a fine line that we walk as Bible believers. Who else does this kind of work? Most people go to church and they just cruise through church. They don't get their hands dirty. They don't uh, go to the street. But that's okay. We're told from First Corinthians that whatever we do, nothing is in vain. It's all good. Look at 22, please. Then was brought unto him one possessed with the devil, blind and dumb, and he healed him insomuch that the blind and the dumb both spake and saw. It would have been good to have said to the Jews in the first century, and maybe our friend today, what can you do then that we can't do? Or, you guys are the chosen race, which they are. Heal this man. Imagine saying that to uh, Caiaphas and Annas and those in organized religion. You guys are disciples of moses which they probably were at least in you know in theory in reality they were enemies of him in fact christ would condemn them because they wanted to kill him in the gospel of john he says you are abraham's children absolutely and yet you're not really his disciples because you want to kill me so therefore if you think you're so special okay you take care of this man i'm going to give you 30 miracles over the next two three maybe four messages who else could do this who else could lay hands on sick people blind and dumb, possessed with the devil, completely in bondage to this unclean spirit. 23, and all the people were amazed and said, is not this the son of David? Once again the people saw him, received him, and perhaps it's fair to say that for some of those people, they despised these religious aristocrats going around and lording it over them, which is what mustn't happen to those in the church today. If you are an elder or a teacher, you mustn't be lording your authority over others. You should lead by example. In fact, Paul would say that the elders would work amongst those in their own congregations, in their own church. So here. A great miracle has taken place, and yet it's made no difference. The chap has been set free. The apostles saw it, rejoiced in it. God was glorified. Christ was honored. Some people perhaps heard about it later, maybe went on and got saved, but the men all around him, those from organized religion, the sort of crowd that wanted to call for a council to put him to death, made no difference whatsoever. Go to chapter 14, please. Chapter 14. Chapter 14. This will be miracle number 18. Chapter 14. Look at verse 14, please. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them and he healed their sick. A great multitude. Could be dozens, could be hundreds. Whoever came to be healed was always healed. This has to be mentioned time after time. If you watch these crusades or if you meet people who claim to be able to do healings, okay, fine. Then the burden is on you to deliver on the goods, as they say. Whoever comes forward to be healed is going to be healed. No failures. In fact, just today, I was uh, watching these two gentlemen walk down Oxford High Street. Odd couple of guys. And there was a girl on a bike. She was probably early 20s. And I just had a feeling that they were going to witness to her, quote-unquote. And I was listening as best as I could without, you know, overly intruding. And they were saying to her, What's your name? Where are you from? And she was somewhat... bit shy, which is fair enough, somewhat reluctant to get to involved with these two individuals. And all I could hear from her is that she was from Australia. And the oldest of the two said, a great miracle is going to come your way in the next 24 hours. Um, Can I pray with you now? And she didn't seem particularly interested. And she got her phone out, making out she was very busy. And I was sort of listening in. And it's funny because where I was standing, maybe just 10 yards ahead of me, was this conversation going on. The two guys talking to the girl made no contact with me whatsoever. I got this huge banner. I got a camera on my chest. There's five of us. And these two, these so-called religious people, no doubt from a local church, made no eye contact with me whatsoever. Now, if I go to another town and I come across somebody with a placard and I'm out doing work, tracking or what have you, normally I will at least say praise the Lord or good on you, just, you know, a little nod or something, unless of course I'm in a hurry and that won't necessarily happen but these two locals had no interest in our presence whatsoever and they wanted to pray over her which she wasn't particularly interested in so they then said well we'll pray for you anyway and she's deliberately looking at her phone trying to ignore these two individuals to her right and they prayed over her and she got on her bike and she cycled up the road they turned around and walked straight right the way down to the bottom of the road where Uh, Cramner, Ridley and Latimer were murdered, and we'll discuss that later perhaps, didn't look back once. And then 10 minutes later, they walked back up the street, walking up towards me, and I could see them walking up towards me, made no eye contact with me whatsoever. I strayed ahead and I said to myself, in fact, I I I think I said to you, what they are doing is they are looking for people to recruit, which goes back to the nation of Islam. I remember years ago when I was in Croydon, 20 years ago perhaps, The Nation of Islam would stand in Croydon with their red bow ties and their very nice newspapers and they would pick out people in the crowd. Black people, not white people, because we are Kafirs. We are unclean. you see. We're not fit for purpose. And of course that's not racist, but if you did what they do, you'd be called a racist. But anyway, and I used to watch these guys during my lunch hour walking up and down Croydon with their newspapers. And they'd pick black men, black girls, young people, which weren't too conditioned. And it came to me today that these two men were probably from some local church, perhaps a cult of some kind, I don't know. But they're very picky who they wanted. Didn't want me, didn't want you, didn't want you, didn't want you, didn't want you. But they wanted this young girl. She's young. Not necessarily to do something, you know, inappropriate with her, but to bring her into into their system, like the Nation of Islam would do. And I thought, yeah. How times never change. But here, uh, 14, 14, Christ is moved with compassion. Again, it's good to know we have a Messiah, we have a Savior who cares for us. Technically, he's not our Messiah, he's the Messiah for Israel. He's our Savior, technically. But as uh, children of the Lord, we can call him our Messiah if we choose to. But technically, Christos Messiah is a term that would have been relevant to the children of Israel. And that's why it's great to preach about Christ. Salvation is found in Christ, not church. I met so many church people this week. We've all met church people this week, I should say. There's five of us around this table. It's not just me. We've all met a lot of church people this week. Some just far too busy to give you the time of day. We met one lady today who is from the Quaker movement, goes to an Anglican church. And again, what are these people going to these churches for? And why aren't these churches preaching the gospel? One chap that you guys spoke to was a Presbyterian who converted to Catholicism. What's going on here? He's gone from one dead system into another. Chapter 14 still, this will be miracle number 19. Miracle number 19, and you'll find it in verse 15. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a desert place, and the time has now passed. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. Now it's been very cold today. It's been snowing today and my feet have frozen or been frozen pretty much all day and all of the others around this table have been getting refreshments, I'm trying to warm myself start up, coffees and what have you. And it gets dark around five thirty, it's still winter time. And yet we took two breaks. We came out after the second break. It's late afternoon. It's not getting too dark, but it's not far from getting dark. And it's like, let's just go home. We've done enough. But no, we pushed on. We put one more hour into street work and had some more conversations. Patrick spoke to a delivery man. Nice enough chap, working minimum wage, having to cycle 15 miles to a job, 15 miles back. Uh, people from different backgrounds, too many to remember. Check the newsletter out. We have all the accounts in there. And it's so tempting to go back to a nice warm home, have a nice meal. But, of course, that's not what we're here for, really. We're here to get the gospel out. And here the apostles are probably of the same mind. Lord, it's a long day. You've done 8, 9, 20 miracles around now from the fourth chapter. You're working day and night. You're very, you're very much a man who leads by example. You need to have a rest, so on and so forth, which is very nice, but it's actually incorrect because he's God manifest in the flesh. So when it says, when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a desert place, and the time has now passed. It's February, it's cold. It's been snowing, let's go home. Send the multitude away, get the banner down, that they may go into the villagers and buy themselves victuals. There's still supermarkets open, there's fast food places on and so forth. But Jesus said unto them, they need not depart, give ye them to eat. And of course, we're giving people spiritual meat. And yes, we will give people physical meat, of course we will. A chat came over to us as we are packing up. Late 50s, early 60s, it's hard to be particularly... Uh, correct as to what his age was, alcoholic, in a pretty bad state, he walked past us maybe 20 times a day, and just as we're packing up, he comes over wanting money, 50 pence. And I said to one of the sisters, but that money will be spent on alcohol, or tobacco, or maybe something else. If he's hungry, fine, let's get him some food. He wants a coffee, fine. But these people don't want food, they don't want coffee, they want money to buy alcohol, so I, understand, I can understand the mindset here. I can understand why the apostles are saying what they are saying. Christ is their rabbi. He's their messiah. They love him. He loves them. They're trying to shield him from undesirables, shall we say. And yet they don't understand. Many times that's what he's come to do. And This goes back once again to the old nature in the believer. These are saved men. The heart's in the right place, of course. But as we'll get uh, later into this account, there's a, an occasion where they want to consume the Lord's enemies. And Christ would have to remind them time after time that he didn't come for that. He came to save people. Christ is so patient with his church, and it's just as well, isn't it? Mm -hmm. 17. And they say unto him, we have here but five loaves and two fishes. Now they think he's speaking about something physical, or something literal. A bit like John chapter 6, eat my flesh, drink my blood. Or John chapter 4, give me some water to drink. And the lady thought he meant... A cup of water. Of course, he's speaking in metaphorical terms. But here, they think he's going to want literal food, like a loaf of bread or some fish, to create something spectacular. Which, of course, is what's going to happen. But they are not anticipating what's about to occur. And this shows how many times we forget past uh, highs, past achievements. We can forget so quickly. That's why we have to renew our minds each and every day. 18 He said, bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass. And took the five loaves and the two fishes, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke, and gave the loaves to his disciples, and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about five thousand men, beside women and children. So within five or six verses, twenty thousand people, have been fed supernaturally, which of course is a throwback to Moses back in the Old Testament. For 40 years, the children of Israel, they start, let's see now, 1.5 million, and they are sustained for 40 years. Many are killed because of sin. Uh, some old and die, of course. But for 40 years, the Lord has preserved his people, and Moses would feed them supernaturally for 40 years. And here, Christ, in just one split moment has taken what appeared initially to be impossible and made it possible. Supernatural, of course. You try and do this today. You try and find any evangelist anywhere in the world who can go to a third world country or a second world country and do such a miracle. In fact, there are people in Britain who are poor. There are people in Manchester, Glasgow, and parts of the east end of England who are poor. And as far as I know, no Christian evangelist has ever gone into such... And environments, and said, This whole street will be taken care of for the next 24 hours. There'll be enough food to go around. Doesn't happen. Much of what you get today is simply the placebo effect. 21 again, and they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. So the figure has been suggested to be 20,000, and I would probably concur with that. A great miracle, and I'd like to see Muhammad try and do this. In fact, I think somebody told one of our groups today that they were great admirers of Confucius and Buddha. And yet, from memory, Buddha deserted his family, walked out on his wife and children in search of the light, whereas Christ would say he was the light of the world. Why would you want to follow someone like him? Why would you want to follow someone like Muhammad, who married a little girl? People are strange. You've got someone who lived for you, someone who died for you, and yet for some of these people... They couldn't care less. Couldn't care less whatsoever. Well, I'll put it this way. Their loss, our gain. If you want to clash with us, fine. You want to reject our saviour, fine. That's your loss. And as Christ will say one more time, don't cast your pearls before swine. The 20th miracle, and I will close. We are still in chapter 14. Look at verse 22, please. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side. While he sent the multitudes away. Now, of course, he knows what he's about to do. The apostles think that their day has come to an end. They're going to have a nice quiet evening. He goes to pray somewhere, like he would do on many occasions. But of course, he's going to test their faith. He would push Abraham to the brink. He would push Jacob to the brink. He would push David to the brink. He would push all of the greats back in the Old Testament. In fact, he almost killed. Old Jonah, when it came to Nineveh, you will preach to the people of Nineveh. You will go down there. You will call those people to repent. And old Jonah jumps on a ship, tries to escape the Lord's sovereign will. And the Lord sends a strong storm, like we're going to read shortly. And they start to panic on the ship. What's going on here? We are professional, sails, uh, professional sailors. We know these waters back to France. We can't explain what's going on. And of course, this guy's sleeping in the bottom of the ship. Not a care in the world. And they wake him up and they say, hey, what's going on? And he said, well, I'm a prophet sent by the Lord to preach to those horrible people over in Nineveh, modern-day Iraq, filthy Gentiles. I can't stand them. You know, They're dogs, they're vermin, but God's told me to go and preach to them. And they start to panic, and they cast lots, and they realize that what he's told them is true. And he says, just throw me into the sea, otherwise we'll all drown in this ship. And they think to themselves, well, if we do that, we could kill a prophet of the Lord. We could be in trouble with the Lord. And they don't want to do that, but eventually they do such a thing, and of course this the fish comes along, swallows them up, and for three and a half days in the heart of the earth, so on so forth. That's the same sort of thing as to what is about to happen here. And that goes back also to the fact that God is sovereign, and man has free will. The two go side by side. You understand it, but you don't want to reject it. You'd be a fool to throw it out. 23, and when he had sent the multitude away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. When the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. It's obvious to me that several things are happening here, like with all of these miracles. The apostles are professional sailors, fishermen. They know these waters very well. They think to themselves, what's going on here? Why are we experiencing such such rocky waters? The devil, of course, is in the background trying to sink the boat, trying to attack the minister, the, the, uh, the master and his men trying to bring it to a, a premature ending, and they start to worry what's going on. 25, and in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. I would love to have seen that. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, "It is a spirit, And they cried out for fear. They must have been terrified. It's pitch black, it's an awful storm. And they are thinking themselves that if we capsize, we will die, never be found. It's beyond hope that we can come through this. And it also shows that they are fearful. Old nature again. You know, where is your faith? Speaks about, you know, perfect love casts out fear. Fear has torment. Many times the apostles are fearful. 27. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. Wonderful words. And Peter answered him and said Lord if it be thou bid me come unto thee on the water now once again Peter is a (laughs) interesting chap to assess his heart was in the right place he loved the Lord he's probably the oldest of the apostles he's probably the weakest of the apostles he's got a short temper as does John the son of Zebedee and he's going to mess up several times and we've seen in fact we'll see it next time I think his first major mistake but here He's on the money. Lord, great term for his deity, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. Allow me to come onto the water. How many people would want to say that? You might be a great swimmer. and I'm sure these guys could swim. They're fishermen after all. But it's late. It's been a pretty uh, frightening event for them. It's dark as well, no doubt. In fact, I think one commentary says it's four o'clock in the morning. Another count, I seem to recall, suggests that Christ walked three miles to find them. Mm. Not just three feet, but three miles. Think about that. So for Peter to say this, demonstrates faith, demonstrates an ability to be near to the one that he loved. 29, and he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. He would have walked maybe a few yards, a few feet, perhaps. We're not told exactly how far. But this man walked on the water because Christ was there to sustain him. And as far as I know, this only ever happened once. Paul didn't walk in any water. John didn't walk on any water anywhere. But Peter did. Because he's special. He's the oldest. He's also the weakest. And the Lord is going to do something special for him. And he'll do it in the presence of the others. To strengthen their faith, no doubt. 30. But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. Save me from drowning. Not save me from my sins. Not save me from hell. As I've heard some people preach in the past. Save me from drowning. I can't make it. The wind is still very strong. Old Leviathan is in the waters. There's something in the sea. The devil is mentioned many times as being interested in the sea. And I go back to that Cousteau account. And that US Navy diver who heard screams around the Caribbean many decades ago. And it terrified them. There's something about the sea, and the devil, and Leviathan, and so on and so forth, which also takes me into uh, Revelation 13. John's on the uh, sand, and he sees a beast rise up out of the sea. Picture of the Antichrist. There's something about the sea. So it's quite natural that Peter is going to be fearful. 31. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him, and said unto him, O thou little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? You can spiritualize that. Lord, save me from my sins. And immediately, Jesus saved that sinner from their sins. It's like the thief on a cross. Just remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. Done. No works involved. No nothing involved. And you try and explain this to people. They don't get it, and they don't want to get it. And immediately, Jesus stretched forth his hand, and caught him, and said unto him, O thou little faith, wherefore, didst thou doubt? He catches him with just one hand, not both hands, One hand, which reminds me of Revelation chapter 1, how it speaks about him having the seven stars in his right hand. He's got the church in his hand, and in his other hand he has the word of God. And here, just one hand, perhaps his right hand, although we're not told, catches him, and a slight rebuke, O thou little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? Fair enough, take the rebuke, it's no doubt warranted. 32. And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. What a surprise. They're now safe with the Messiah. He has not only caught Peter and rescued him from drowning, but the moment he boards the boat, all is good. 33, and I will close. Then they, that when the ship came and worshipped him, saying of a truth, thou art the Son of God, worshipped him time after time, saying of a truth, thou art the Son of God. And you tell that to a Muslim, he will laugh in your face. But it's true. Then they, all of them, that were in the ship, great pitch of salvation, Christ is called the captain of our salvation, came and worshipped him, get on your knees, saying of a truth, without any doubt whatsoever in our minds, thou art the Son of God, which, for Judas, say, would put Christ on par with the Father. That's why they took up stones to kill him, over in John chapter 10, because thou, being a man, makest thyself God. That's why they wanted to kill him. And Paul speaks about this in the book of Philippians. I think it is Uh, Philippians. How he didn't think it was robbery to be made equal unto God. So we can worship Christ. He's not just a man. He's God. He's God manifest in the flesh. If you're just a man and you wanted to worship him, then you'd be a fool. That's idolatry. But because he is God manifest in the flesh, we can and must worship him because that is what God, the Father, wants us to do, and because he's God the Son, we are permitted to do so it's not idolatry it's bible the one who created us is the one who died for us and the one who died for us is the one that allows us expects us to worship him and to praise him and give him all the glory that is due unto him so there we are nearly 40 minutes somewhat longer than i initially thought and i'm still thinking this could be a three to four part Uh, this is part three obviously so next time we'll look at part four And perhaps conclude in part four. Though Who knows? It could even become a five-part. But we'll close it there. And that was miracle number 20. Miracle number 20, Matthew chapter 14. And we'll pick it up next time in Matthew 14, verse 33 to 36. Looking at the 21st public miracle next time. Okay, so this will be day number five. And this will be study number four. Looking at the Master, His Miracles and His Men. And I'm going to take a chance and guess that there will be at least two more parts to this message. So it will run to around five parts. Which is okay because there's no rush. And these are wonderful accounts of the Master, His Men and His Miracles. Matthew chapter 14. Matthew chapter 14. This will be the 21st public miracle. Look at verse 34, please. And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Gennesaret. When the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about, and brought unto him all that were diseased, and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Like I've been saying over the last four parts, this man was on a mission not only to seek and to save those that he came into contact with but to also heal people because he cares for his creation he's very much identified with his creation unlike Allah which simply means the God almighty God is a loving God almighty God is a caring God almighty God created man to enjoy eternal fellowship with him there's a purpose to why we are here and that's one of the reasons why we are here this week in Oxford to speak to people About the son of God and explain to them why they must be born again and here he's arrived in Genesaret and when the men of that place had knowledge of him when word got out they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased every possible disease you can imagine no hospitals in those days and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment just touch a piece of his clothing And as many as touched were made perfectly whole. Now we can spiritualize that. And we can say this, that if you reach out to the Savior, if you reach out and grab his hand, he'll grab your hand and he will save you. There's a picture there of faith. There's a picture there of contact. There's a picture there of appropriating the atonement. Sure, these people came forth to receive physical healing, but we come forth to receive spiritual healing. We come forth to be saved. So as always, you've got two things there, You've got provision and appropriation you've got almighty God reaching out to sinners to be reconciled to them but at the same time he expects sinners to reach out to him and be saved you're not automatically saved you have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ it's like I've said so many times over the years if I was to give you a check for five pounds and you were to say thank you very much take the check from me and just keep it indefinitely never bank it it won't profit you at the same time, it's going to be an insult to me. I've taken the time to write out a cheque for you, I've given it to you, and you've had no interest. You've, you've observed it, you've been intrigued to look at it, to uh, hold it in your hand, but you've never done anything with it, and that comes down to faith as well. I'll get saved on my deathbed, almighty God loves me, God loves everyone, all God's children, I can live as I will. No, you won't live as you will. Even if you're saved, you're going to get chastised If you start to live as you will, and if you're not saved and living like the devil, you will go to hell when you die. Matthew chapter 15 looks at an interesting dialogue with the Apostle Peter, who, if you speak to Catholics, would have you believe that he was the first Pope, that he was infallible. And for Matthew chapter 15, look at verse 15, please. Then answered Peter, and said unto him, Declare unto us this parable. We don't quite understand what you are talking about, Lord. We are children. We're all growing at different rates. And this goes back to one also important point that the Lord had no favourites. Yes, He had a small group, a clique. He had uh, Peter, Andrew, and John, sometimes James, and they were part of His inner circle, if you will. They would witness the transfiguration, which we should get to this morning. But for the most, I think the Lord had no favourites as such. He was very patient. And he was very understanding when it came to those that were trying to grasp and grapple with his teachings. 16. And Jesus said, Are you also yet without understanding? Now, a slight rebuke there. Don't you understand what I'm saying? Why are you not on the same page as I am? Why is there some kind of issue arising? What seems to be the problem? 17. Do not yet understand that whatsoever entereth in at the mouth goeth into the belly, and is cast out into the draught? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not Amen. Over in Acts chapter 10, Peter would get into, maybe I shouldn't use the word spat, but an altercation, a disagreement with the Lord concerning foods. But Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm a good pork abstaining, Sabbath attending, circumcised Jew. I'm a good child of Israel. I've never eaten anything that would defile me. And three times that conversation between Peter and Christ would Go on until Peter understood that all foods have now been made pure, acceptable. So 15, 16 and 17, picture, on the one hand, an understanding saviour, and yet, on the other hand, a slightly perplexed saviour. Don't you understand, 17? Whatsoever entereth in at the mouth, goeth into the belly, and is cast out into the draught. Don't worry about what you eat, the Old Testament dispensation, has come to a a conclusion. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come forth from the heart and they defile the man. Four letter words, gossiping, ungodly thoughts, unkindness. And that's why it's always important to check yourself out to make sure you're in the faith. 19 again, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Going back to Jeremiah, your heart is desperately wicked. It all comes from the heart. Going back to our first study, Looking at atheism. It's a heart problem. Your head can grasp. Your head knows that creation is creation. That man is man. That God is God. That there has to be rules. Otherwise we'd have chaos all around us. But your heart doesn't want to be told what to do. Your heart suppresses the truth in unrighteousness. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Not deeds. Thoughts. Like murders. Adulteries. Fornications. Thefts, false witness blasphemies, these are the things which defile a man, a woman of course, but to eat with unwashing hands defileth not a man. In other words, if you don't go through this ceremonial system before you pay your meal, which is what the Pharisees are very good at doing, big deal. It doesn't make any difference. Almighty God is looking at your heart. Go back to the Old Testament. It says how the Lord looks on the heart of man, but man looks on the outward appearance. That's a great pitch of justification in the sight of God versus justification in the sight of man. We are still in Matthew chapter 15, and this will be the 22nd miracle. Look at verse 21, please. Then Jesus went thence and departed into the coasts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came out of the same coasts and cried unto him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, thou son of David. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. My daughter, my young daughter, I'm thinking she was around 12 years of age, 13, 14, 15. I'm thinking she was a young girl, like the girl from Mark chapter 5, Jairus' daughter. And I'm thinking that her mother was an immoral woman, and perhaps was into witchcraft, astrology. Perhaps her mother was a prostitute. Perhaps her mother was a loose kind of woman, shall we say. And therefore on the way, her daughter has become afflicted an unclean spirit and this account was put to us last october when we were at speaker's corner concerning the choice of words that christ would use when he came into contact with this woman and the case was put to us that christ was a racist somewhat of a joke i know because he was very stern he was very harsh very racial quote-unquote towards this woman but of course what they failed to understand is that christ was a jew said to the children of israel The children of Israel are God's covenant people. The Gentiles, historically, have been unclean people, uncivilized people, undesirables, and therefore Christ technically didn't have to deal with this woman's desperate plea to have her child set free from an unclean spirit. And go back to what I said last night. Look at all those that were clashing with him, all those from academia, all those from the world of uh, organized religion like Caiaphas and co. Great orators, great showmen, and yet when people had real problems, they couldn't help them, which goes back to what we said at the beginning of this week, lordship, salvation. If you don't live it, you lose it. You mustn't do this, you mustn't do that. If you deny Christ or if you don't speak up for him, maybe not saved. Well, take those same people that preach that type, uh, that same type of message and put them into the real world. Put them on a building site, put them in a warehouse, put them on a street selling groceries, working with unsaved men and women. And I guarantee you within two, three, four, five days, they will start to backslide. They will start to compromise because the spirit is winning, it with the flesh is weak. Take something out of a classroom, put it into the real world, doesn't work. And that's why it's interesting to see this traveling rabbi, never ordained by anyone from organized religion, helping so many people, having the common touch, something which so many callers today... Just don't have stuck up, arrogant and indifferent. But she says to him, O Lord, thou son of David. She's a Gentile. My daughter is grievously vexed with a devil. She displayed more faith than a lot of the Jews combined. Going back to the centurion from our first study. I've got a hundred men under me. Just speak a word. Don't come into my house. I'm not worthy that you should even walk into my property. And that really touched the Lord's heart. And he would say, I've never seen so much faith in all of Israel. And many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. A picture of the Gentiles having fellowship with the Jews, and the Jews having fellowship with the Gentiles in the millennial kingdom. 23. But he answered not a word. And his disciples came and besought him, saying, Send her away, for she crieth after us. Get rid of her, Lord. She's this unclean woman. She's a nuisance. She's an irritant. She's a Canaanite. The Jews have had a lot of problems with the Canaanites going back to the Old Testament. She's causing a scene. We don't like her. Like I say, she's probably a prostitute. She's an immoral woman. Just get rid of her, Lord, please. Now, again, this goes back to what I said last night. The apostles, on many occasions, thought they were doing the Lord a favor, trying to shield him from undesirables and those that they thought were causing him problems. And that goes back to John chapter 4, the woman at the well. You know, send her away, Lord, or who's he speaking to? That woman's a Samaritan. They're unclean people. They're half Gentile, half Jew. Completely missing the point as to why the Lord came. 24. But he answered and said, I'm not sent, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So one more time, let me repeat myself. The Gospels, although they are in the New Testament, technically, doctrinally, are a throwback to the Old Covenant. The New Covenant will technically start with the death of the testator. Even actually the Apostles, although it comes after the four Gospels, is still especially the first 15 chapters, is dealing with the Jews in Jerusalem, going to the temple, speaking to the Jews about how to be saved. So Jewish apostles in Jerusalem, speaking to the Jews about the things of Jewry. The Gentiles don't uh, come into play until I think it's around uh, Acts chapter 11. That's why it's worth going to the Pauline epistles. But don't be too uh, surprised To read this piece of scripture Because like I say Christ's first part of his ministry Was to come to Israel Preach to Israel And offer Israel the chance To receive the Millennial Kingdom I remember watching a rabbi Online a few days ago In Israel And he was speaking to an American pastor It was a very poor conversation On the part of the American pastor And the American pastor said to the rabbi Why don't the Jews receive Christ? Why don't they believe on him? And this old rabbi probably about 90, he said, well, Christ didn't bring peace. And I was waiting for the, the uh, American pastor to say, well, he didn't bring peace because the Jews rejected him, and he didn't respond to the rabbi's statements as if it somehow gave legitimacy for the Jews to reject him. And therefore the church is offered a chance to be part of a covenant with Almighty God. 25. Then came she and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Now, she's already affirmed his deity, 21. 25 she's worshipping him she's asking him for help which is pretty remarkable you won't find 10 jews that came anywhere near this woman's desperation and humility 26 and he answered and said It is not meet to take the children's bread and to cast it to the dogs that got thrown at us last october people saying how can christ call this woman a dog because she was a gentile It speaks about dogs in the Old Testament and New Testament, especially in Revelation, outside of the kingdom of dogs. Again, dogs are unclean animals. If you speak to a Muslim, they run a mile when a dog heads over in their direction. For Gentiles, dogs are pets, greatly beloved, but in the eyes of the Lord, dogs are referred to as being Gentiles. Gentiles are pictured as being unsaved people, unclean people. So before you got saved, as far as Almighty God is concerned, you were a dog. It is not meat, it is not right, to take the children's bread, Israel, and cast it to the dogs, Gentiles. And she said, Truth, Lord, yet the dogs eat of the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Wow, what a picture of humbling yourself. This is the third, fourth time that this woman has thrown herself at the feet of the master, demonstrating so much faith, so much humility. 28. Then Jesus answered and said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith bid unto thee even as thou wilt and her daughter was made whole in that very hour prayer pays off her persistence paid off she, hum- she had to humble herself she had to humiliate herself she had to identify herself with the master she had a need she was desperate religion couldn't help her the apostles were unable to help her so it fell to almighty god to intervene and take care of this woman and a young daughter, and it says how she was made whole from that very hour, like straight away. So go back to your guru, go back to whoever you are following, if you're not a Christian, and ask yourself this, does your man, or does your woman, or does your church, or does your group, come anywhere near this type of person that we are reading about today, referred to as the Lord Jesus Christ? If the answer is no, then perhaps you aren't following the right type of person, Perhaps you're following a rascal just like yourself. A wicked reprobate. You need to be born again. You need to get into the word of God. and Follow someone who's far greater than you are. Look at 29. This will be the 23rd public miracle. Verse 29 from Matthew 15. And Jesus departed from thence and came nigh unto the sea of Galilee, which went up into a mountain and sat down there and no doubt prayed. This man would pray until he prayed. And one of my weaknesses is that I don't pray enough, like on my knees. I pray throughout my day. I speak to the Lord throughout my day. I speak to him when I'm working, when I'm preparing messages, when I'm doing this, when I'm doing that. But I mean, on my knees is a weakness of mine. And I am the first to confess that. Thirty. And great multitudes came unto him, having with them those that were lame, blind, dumb, maimed, and many others, and cast them down at Jesus' feet. And he healed them. Insomuch that the multitude wandered when they saw the dumb to speak, the maimed to be whole, the lame to walk, and the blind to see. And they glorified the God of Israel. Hundreds, if not thousands, would have been healed throughout the Lord's ministry. And like I said before, word would have got back to Herod and Pilate and those in Jerusalem about this rabbi around the age of 30, doing miracles like no one had ever done before him. Elijah was a, a remarkable man. Elisha was a remarkable man. And yet, I can't think of Jeremiah doing any great miracles, or Ezekiel, or Isaiah. I might be wrong. They are referred to as great prophets. A lot of good material in their writings. But miracles, miracles per se, miracles, weren't part of their ministry. Moses, yes, absolutely. There are some miracles tied in with Joshua, uh, but miracles in the sense of Moses, miracles in the sense of Christ, are far and few between. And here you've got those that were maimed, dumb, Lame to walk, blind to see, being healed straight away. And perhaps even having unclean spirits set free from themselves. And they glorified the God of Israel. That's what it's all about. This is my beloved son, hear ye him. It's about a relationship with almighty God via the son. There's no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. And that's why we preach salvation is found in a person. Salvation is found in Christ, not church what church do you go to? Who's your pastor? We have a wonderful church we go to, blah, blah, blah. Who cares what church you go to? If your church is so wonderful, let's see them on the street preaching. Let's see a pastor preaching on the street. Let's see a pastor giving out tracts. Let's see a pastor buying Bible tracts out of his own money. Let's see a pastor buying Bibles out of his own money. Let's see a pastor getting a banner made out of his own money. Makes me sick. Milker number 24 this will be the feeding of the four thousand last time we looked at the feeding of the five thousand now it's going to be the feeding of the four thousand Matthew 15 still look at 32 please then Jesus called his disciples unto him and said I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days and have nothing to eat and I will not send them away fasting lest they faint in the way it's obvious to me that Christ had a lot of charisma the right type of charisma Men followed him in their hundreds, women followed him in their dozens. It's important that we make that statement because not only was Christ doing miracles, not only was Christ quoting the Old Testament, not only was Christ quoting the New Testament, which was yet to be written, but he was calm, he was collective, he had charisma, and he was able to connect with men and women. And here, this multitude could be hundreds. Have been following him for three days. They can't stay away from him. He has this uh, contagious personality. There's something about him which they've never seen or heard before. And he knows that a miracle needs to take place because they will faint in the way. It's like when I go for my walk to the open air pulpits and it starts to rain. And I'm halfway from the pulpits, halfway from my home. And I can't go back because it's too far to go back. So I've got to keep going forward. I've got to get home. But Christ knows that they've been with him for three days. They can't go back. And if they were to attempt to go back, they would faint in the way. 33. And his disciples say unto him, Whence should we have so much bread in the wilderness, so as to fill so great a multitude? Now, they've forgotten about the feeding of the 5,000. And this goes back to all of us. We get a great blessing. We get a great conversation going. Or we have a great connection with someone. Or we have a great day with the Lord great time in scripture, we discover some great things, and then within five minutes we forget, we start to panic. Oh Lord, help me out, I'm sinking, you know, I've got a problem going on, how am I going to get through this, how am I going to get through that? We forget so quickly, because the spirit is willing, again, but the flesh is weak. The Apostle Paul would lament many times over his filthy flesh, You know, he would say over in Philippians 3 that he hadn't yet attained to the level of perfection, O wretched man that I am, that which I want to do, I don't do, and that which I don't want to do, I end up doing. Who should deliver me from this body of death? Who should deliver me from this awful situation? And he goes and say how it will be Christ Jesus, of course, but not in this lifetime. So here the apostles have forgotten already about the previous miracle, and that's why they are making the statements about how can we find so much food in the wilderness to take care of such a great multitude. 34. And Jesus saith unto them, How many loaves have ye? And he said, Seven and a few fishes. That number again, seven. Come back to that number shortly. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground and took the seven loaves and the fishes and gave thanks and brake them and gave to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. Christ, apostles, multitude. Christ, apostles, food. Christ, disciples, people. One, two, three, Father, son, Holy Ghost, maybe not thirty seven and they did all eat and were filled, and they took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets full there 's a number against seven, and they that did eat were four thousand men beside women and children, and he sent away the multitude and took ship and came to the coasts of magdala doesn 't hang around doesn 't want people to to proclaim him as the son of David to push him to bring in the kingdom all will come in good time but this underscores the apostles um, lack of faith on the one hand short memory on the other hand but overly the lord's mercy his miraculous intervention going back to moses and the children of israel being fed and sustained for 40 years matthew chapter 16 matthew chapter 16 much material in matthew chapter 16 look at verse 13 please when jesus came into the coasts of caesarea philippi he asked his disciples saying whom do men say that i the son of man am now he's asking all of the apostles not just some but all of the apostles and here they are referred to as disciples whom do men say that i the son of man am now to the best of my knowledge the apostle paul Never once referred to Christ as the Son of Man. Son of God, absolutely. Not the Son of Man. Because the Son of Man is tied in with Israel. The Son of Man is tied in with the kingdom of heaven. The Son of Man is tied in with a literal Jewish messianic kingdom. Like a king on a throne. Going back to the Son of David. So the question is put to all of the disciples. Not just one, but all of them. Fourteen. And they said... Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others, Jeremiah, so one of the prophets, he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? So the response goes back to all of them, but whom say ye, all of you, that I am? Some say John the Baptist, seven, uh, 14, some say Elias, Elijah, some say Jeremiah, being Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Makes sense. John the Baptist was his cousin. Jeremiah is the weeping prophet. Elijah is very much a type of Christ. But, of course, John the Baptist is commissioned with the same spirit, the same sort of ministry that Elijah was commissioned with. In fact, when Christ would hang on the cross, they would say he's calling for Elijah to come down and help him, to rescue him. So 15, he saith unto them, he's going to ask all of them, but whom say ye that I am? You've got the 12 there. You've got the 70 there, quite possibly. You've got the women there. So you've got around 100 people present when he asked this question. 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Concerning Israel, the Son of the living God. Equal with God. Now when it comes to who affirmed his deity first of all, it wasn't Simon Peter. If you go back to the Gospel of John, it starts with John the Baptist. Then from memory, it's going to be Andrew then I think it's Peter. So when it comes to, in date succession, when it comes to those that got his deity down, first of all, Peter wasn't the first. Pe- Peter's number three, Peter's number four, but he's not the first. So here Peter, I think, is speaking for all of them. 17. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Sambal, Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Well done, Peter. You are blessed because you haven't, that this revealed to you from flesh and blood, like someone else, but from my Father, which is in heaven that 's fine, eighteen, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it upon your profession, Peter, upon your statement, which has come to you from Almighty God, verse seventeen, a picture of grace being a recipient of grace, not a dispenser, the gates of hell will never prevail, not. Against Peter per se. Because Peter will mess up at least three more times. Uh, in this gospel alone. But how the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. The body of Christ. 19. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the commission goes to Peter. Which he will use Acts 1 acts chapter 2 but that commission is also going to be given to the rest of the apostles which uh, we'll look at next time and i will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven not the kingdom of god and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven and that will be delegated to the others from chapter 18 and also john chapter 20 so you had quite a bit of material thus far and i think We may have time just for one more, and then we will close. From the same chapter, look at verse 22. Then Peter took him, and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. Christ has congratulated him because of his statement confirming his deity, and yet within two verses, Far be it from thee, O Lord, it won't happen, O Lord. Far be it from thee, Lord, may it never happen, Lord. This shall not be unto thee concerning twenty-one. How that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And be raised again the third day. Shock and horror. This can't be so. We waited centuries for the Messiah to come. And you are telling us, Lord, that they're going to kill you. They're going to put you on a pagan wooden cross naked for six hours. Impossible. Look at twenty-three. But he turned. I said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, thou art an offence unto me. For thou savest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Within two, three, four verses of Peter being commended, Christ has rebuked him publicly in front of everyone else. How humiliating. And on top of that, he is accrediting Satan for Peter's attack. Peter was rebuking Christ. Just think of that for one moment. Peter is taking Christ aside and rebuking him. You think Peter was an infallible man? Think again. Yes, he was a good man, a saved man, absolutely. But he wasn't perfect. Hence why Christ had just taken him aside to rebuke him. So I will hold it there, I think. And next week, or, me well, next week, what am I saying? Tomorrow, or maybe tonight, um, I will hopefully return and finish what is left okay. of the miracles of the master. This will be number four, like I say. And Lord willing, if we... Return tonight, I will hopefully look at the transfiguration and some other miracles. But as always, you've got the Master working in public, doing miracles, taking people's sufferings from them, healing them supernaturally, allowing his apostles to see him at work, and yet time after time they would forget. Time after time they would be puzzled as to what he was doing and why he was doing what he was doing, which goes back to the complexity in the believer. Yes, we're saved, we know we're saved, but we still stumble, we still fail at times to grasp what is going on, because we are finite, we are flesh and blood, living in time. And therefore as such, we need to be uh, schooled time after time. In fact, look at 24 quickly. Mm -hmm. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him, deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, for whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. So quit living for yourself, but more importantly, start trusting in him. The problem with Peter, as far as these two verses are concerned, was that he's probably a little prideful, a little puffed up. He's also going to witness the transfiguration from the next chapter. But his heart was in the right place, hence why Christ was so patient with him. Whosoever will save his life shall lose it. I live my life today, do my own thing, pass up the gospel and die and go to hell. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake, living for Christ, uh, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, shall find it. So you lose your life now. Could be physically, could be spiritually, but you find it at the judgment seat of the Lord. A paradox, of course. 26. For what has man profited? If he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works verily I say unto you there be some standing here which will not taste of death till they see the son of man coming in his kingdom you won't taste of death when you see the transfiguration you should do because you're going to be in the presence of deity you'll be in the presence of a glorified saviour but you won't taste of death because I'm going to preserve you but we'll pick it up tonight okay so this will be uh, part five I believe from day five looking at the master and his miracles and his men And we finished this morning in chapter 16 concerning Peter and the keys, a very contentious part of Scripture. Catholics believe that Peter was made the first Pope, and as such the keys are symbolic of his authority. But of course the keys that he received would be the keys to the Kingdom of Heaven, not the Kingdom of God. And yes, there is a difference. Go to chapter 18, and I'll come back to chapter 17. In a few moments, which will deal with the transfiguration. But in chapter 18, I mentioned this morning. Just want to read it to you. Matthew 18:18. 18, 18, Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Ye, plural. Chapter 16. The context is addressed to Peter. 19. I'll give unto thee, singular, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. From chapter 18 is now ye. Context is switched from Peter singular to the Apostles plural. Whatsoever ye, all of you, shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye, all of you, shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Nineteen Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. So again, the uh, authority goes from Peter to all of the apostles, and this is also cross reference to uh, John chapter 20. But the easiest way to understand chapter 16, and go to Matthew 17 please, is that it's simply concerning Peter's professional faith. He spoke for all of the apostles, and like I said uh, this morning, if you want to look at this from date order, John the Baptist was the first to affirm his deity, followed by... Uh, Andrew, who would then find his brother Peter, who then is um, given a blessing by Jesus. You will now be called Cephas, sons of forth. Also, James and John, these sons of Zebedee, were given a new name as well. I think it's Boinicus, which means sons of thunder. Catholics don't always like to tell people that. They say Peter got a new name, which he did, but so too did the sons of thunder. And of course, John the Apostle is referred to as the Beloved apostle and john the apostle would take care of mary and her children upon the lord's death so this morning we finished in chapter 16 where the lord made the following statements and i'll read it again before we get into chapter 17 i think it was chapter 16 this morning which will feed into chapter 17 and the context is found in 16:28. verily i say unto you there be some standing here which are not taste of death till they see the son of man coming in his kingdom it's clear in reference to the transfiguration and there are seven major events in scripture you've got the creation, the incarnation, the transfiguration the resurrection, the ascension, the rapture and the second coming seven major events which if you're not saved means nothing to you but if you are saved, those seven facts, events are hugely important to those of us which are saved and of course seven is a number of deity so the promise, the prediction has been made from 1628 and straight away we discover in 171, and after six days jesus taketh peter james and john his brother and bring them up into an high mountain apart and was transfigured before them and his face as shine as a sun and his raiment was white as a light revelation speaks about cherubim seraphim being in the presence of the lord i think isaiah speaks of the seraphim's revelation speaks of the cherubims. they have six wings two that cover their faces two that cover their feet and two which allow them to fly around They're in the presence of deity hence why they cover their faces and here you've got peter james and john his inner circle his closest uh, apostles and he takes them up to a high mountain many times mountains are found in scripture and of course there's two things to say to that number one In the Old Testament, a lot of pagan worship would take place up on the high mountains and the high points. At the same time, you have Samuel the prophet who would worship up on the high mountains. So height isn't necessarily a bad thing. Christ would speak from the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. I make my videos from a high point. So the height itself isn't the issue. It's what is connected to it. And here he's taken three of his closest apostles, two brothers, James and John and Peter, and he was transfigured before them, A change has taken place. And his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. From Malachi chapter 4, he is spoken about as being the son of righteousness, S-U-N. And here, this inner cabinet, if you will, this close group of apostles, has been given a glimpse of the second coming. Now, of course, back in the Old Testament, if you were to see deity, you would die. Hence, why when Moses was able to see the Lord, he saw the Lord from behind. I guess it's like coming into contact with some kind of radiation. We don't quite understand the meaning to this, but if you're not changed, you are consumed, and that goes back to First Corinthians 15: How flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You know, in a moment, in the twinkling, at the last trump, we should all be changed. We have to be made clean for entrance into heaven. Now for now, uh, for today, we are given an imputed righteousness which allows us to have fellowship with the Lord. Adam and Eve were given a physical covering which I take to suggest they may have been saved, although there's no scripture to say they were saved. It's always interesting when you read commentaries about Adam and Eve, what they don't tell you. And I got a handful of reference Bibles and not one of them tells me whether or not Adam and Eve were saved. We don't know, but based on the Uh, animal garments that the lord gave them it would appear to me that perhaps they were saved so they have to be made clean on top of that they were naked in the garden hence why they are covered to go into the world that physical covering is a type of our imputation imputed righteousness look at verse 3 from chapter 17 please and behold there appeared unto them moses and elias talking with him moses and elijah two possible individuals for the two witnesses found in the book of revelation moses starts the first five books of the bible elijah of course is a great prophet post moses on top of that he's mentioned along with moses in the last book of the bible so moses and elijah are very much types of christ both did miracles both worked during difficult circumstances both came up against a lot of pressure moses of course would uh, carry the children of israel for 40 years in the desert almighty god would feed them spiritually uh, yeah spiritually physically but mainly supernaturally elijah would work hand in hand with elisha in some ways elijah is a type of christ and elisha could be a type of paul paul has more authority he has more knowledge than peter paul went to the third heaven peter wasn't shown the third heaven paul was given the gospel of the grace of god peter wasn't paul was shown uh, the antichrist the rapture peter wasn't john was shown the false prophet paul wasn't Hence why probably we are reading about such from 17.1. Also this goes back to progressive revelation. Mm -hmm. You give someone too much too soon, they overload. So the Lord as a very patient teacher is taking his time when it comes to explaining Mm -hmm. what he wants them to understand, but here what he wants them to see. Verse 4. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. Now, once again, Peter kind of puts his foot in his mouth. His heart's in the right place. He's overwhelmed. He's probably anxious. He can see the Lord. Also, note, he recognises Moses. He recognises Elijah. Now, back in the day, there were no paintings, there were no pictures. This takes us, therefore, into the realm of whether or not we can recognise people in glory. And the answer from this would suggest that we can. When we arrive in glory, we will see all of the greats going back to Abraham I guess the first Jewish patriarch and we can recognize such people. The rich man in hell said to Father Abraham, send Lazarus that he may dip his finger in my tongue so on and so forth. There's a recognition and here Peter living on the earth 31, 32 AD, actually back up 29, 30, 31, yeah about 30, 31, 32 AD has been able to recognize Moses and Elijah and he's somewhat anxious, overwhelmed. In many ways, the apostles are pictured like children in scripture. I guess if we were in their shoes, we would be the same perhaps as well. Overwhelmed, trying to take it all on board. You're living with the the Lord God of the Bible. You're walking with him. You're dining with him. You're experiencing such great revelations. For most people, it would be overwhelming. Five. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Once again, a further reaffirmation as to who Christ was, what his ministry was all about. And I'm not necessarily of the opinion that they needed to be reminded, but it obviously was said for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the glory of God the Son. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were so afraid. Absolutely. I mean, just imagine, for example, if you hold to UFOs, and I don't. But let's say you do hold to UFOs. And one day this flying object came out of space and landed in your front garden, and these little green men got out. It'd be quite a sight to behold. And here you've got a picture of the transfiguration, you've got a picture of a voice from heaven being God the Father. They've seen two great patriarchs. They're overwhelmed. And again there's no infallibility, there's no impeccability here. There's very much a picture this is very much a picture of learning on the job. And it's important that we understand this, that we don't react too critically towards what is taking place. From chapter 17, uh, verse 14, this will be the 25th public miracle. 17, 14. And when they were come to the multitude, there came to him a certain man, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and so vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. My son, my young son, previously the Canaanite, would beseech the Lord to set her daughter, her young daughter, clean of an unclean spirit, to clean her, to cleanse her, to deliver her. And here, you've got a father seeking out the eternal father with a desperate plea to have his child set free. Lord, great picture for his deity, have mercy on my son, for he is lunatic and so vexed. For oft times he falleth into the fire and oft into the water. The devil is trying to kill him, obviously. If he couldn't drown him, he wanted to burn him. And this opens up another concerning subject, children being demon-possessed, children being possessed with unclean spirits. To the best of my knowledge, the four Gospels, when they speak about demon-possession, on many occasions not only deal with ordinary people, but also with children. And interestingly enough, don't speak about or don't discuss people like um, Caiaphas or Annas or even Pilate or Herod. Being demon possessed, which you would think would be the case. Wicked, ungodly men. But no, according to the scripture, they weren't possessed by devils, but children were, which of course goes back to their parents. How are you raising your children? What are you saying to them? How are you treating them? What are they seeing? If you are a parent, your children are your mission field. 16. And I brought him to thy disciples, and they could not cure him. Now, of course, he's gone up to the transfiguration, or he's gone up to the mount, and he's transfigured himself before them. Peter, James and John went up with him. That leaves the other nine down waiting for him to return. Which almost pictures Moses up on the mount with Jesus being Jehovah of course. And he comes down and there's this riot going on. And Moses is very upset. They created an, uh, an idol of some kind. And Moses says, who's with me? And all the Levites step forward. And I think from memory around twenty-two, twenty-three thousand 23,000 people are put to death due to the sin of idolatry this isn't quite the same but something's going on here the apostles haven't got the ability they've got the authority but not the ability to take care of this tortured child 17 then jesus answered and said "O faithless and perverse generation how long shall i be with you how long shall i suffer you bring them hither to me no doubt about it a scathing rebuke faithless perverse generation how long shall i suffer you how long shall I put up with you? Bring him hither to me. Completely bypasses the apostles, which according to Rome are infallible, and takes care of business himself. 18. And Jesus rebuked the devil, and he departed out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Straight away, no come back tomorrow, let's do it again, or no say a prayer, or sign a dotted line, or give me an offering first. It's just dealt with. Like creation, let there be light, there was light. And here, Jesus rebukes the devil, and he, the devil, or a devil, an unclean spirit, would depart out of him. And the child, a boy, around 12 or under, I would believe to be the case, was cured from that very hour. Such a great scripture. And he goes on to rebuke the apostles for lacking faith, for being argumentative, wanting to uh, be boss. In fact, he says in 21, just read it, how bit this kind goeth not out, but by prayer and fasting. For those of us which are saved and living in the church age today, when we read these verses, on the one hand, it's a great blessing. You think, what an event to have been a part of. And when you go to the Pauline epistles, there's no mention of exorcisms. There's no mention of casting out devils. There's no mention of doing anything like this. The commission was given to Christ. He gives it to the apostles, maybe the 70, but it seems to stop with them. Mm. Peter in Acts would do miracles, Paul in Acts would do miracles, John in Acts would do uh, miracles, along with probably Stephen and Philip, but beyond those guys, as I sit here tonight, I can't think of anyone else who would do miracles, I can't think of any account where Timothy is ever spoken about as doing miracles, or Titus, or Silas, or even Dr. Luke for that matter, this is a very limited remote. this also goes back to the kingdom of heaven again, not the kingdom of God. When the two come together, when you read about the kingdom of God in one verse and the kingdom of heaven in the next verse, the only way to really understand that is the fact that you've got Christ on the earth and therefore the two, king, the two kingdoms come together. But with the epistles, you've got the king back in heaven, hence why it's the kingdom of God, son of God, never son of man, linked into the kingdom of heaven. And there's a clear distinction there, which is important for us to understand. 17, look at verse 24, please. Matthew seventeen twenty-four. This will be the 26th public miracle. And again, nothing done in secret. Nothing done, done underhand. Everything done in the open. And no money asked either. Seventeen twenty-four. And when they were come to Capernaum, they that received tribute money came to Peter and said, Doth not your master pay tribute? He saith, Yes. And when he was coming to the house, Jesus prevented him, saying, What thinkest thou, Simon, of whom did the kings of the earth take custom or tribute? Of their own children, of strangers. Peter saith unto him, Of strangers. Jesus saith unto him, Then are the children free, notwithstanding, lest we should offend them. Go thou to the sea, and cast an hook, and take up the fish that first cometh up. And when thou hast opened his mouth, thou shalt find a piece of money. That take, and give unto them, for me and thee. A great miracle, a very unusual miracle, and this miracle, of course, would involve money but not in the context of christ asking for money in the context of christ providing money to go to peter to pay the custom the tribute from verse 24 and as far as i can recall this is the only time that money and miracles are found in the same couple of verses jump over to chapter 19 please chapter 19 and this will be the 27th healing 19 look at verse 1 and it came to pass that when jesus had finished these sayings he departed from galilee and came to the coasts of judea beyond jordan and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there could be dozens more likely hundreds men women and children wanting to be healed of all sorts of issues and without a second thought without any doubt whatsoever no limitations put on him because he had the holy ghost he had the Anointing, He had uh, the authority from heaven. Such uh, miracles, and this would be concerning a group, a multitude, would take place. And there were no problems whatsoever. Also from uh, chapter 19, jump down to verse uh, 27. Then answered Peter, and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all, and follow thee. What shall we have therefore? It's a fair question. These were upper working class, self-employed, professional fishermen, family men, well-to-do men, and they were called for service, not salvation. They would quit what they were doing, as would Matthew, uh, a Levite, a tax collector. You know, they think themselves, what are we going to get? You know, we've forsaken everything and followed you. What is our reward going to be? 28. And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that you which have followed me, In the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, he also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Pretty self-explanatory. Millennium, of course. The twelve apostles are going to represent the twelve tribes of Israel. And there's a picture there of ruling and reigning with the Lord. And the cross-reference to this is also interesting. Uh, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. Look at verse 29, please. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my sake and the gospels. But he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands with persecutions, and in the world to come, life eternal, or everlasting life, eternal life. You've got two things there. You've got those that get saved, receiving spiritual brothers, spiritual sisters, spiritual mothers and fathers, something which we can testify to. But beyond that, eternal life, which of course will feed into the millennial kingdom. So for the short term, it would be difficult for those in the first century and it's difficult for those in difficult countries today or third world countries today. Of course, there are some people in the West that are struggling, but nothing like they are in third world countries, so you may lose friends and family now, you may lose uh, incomes, you may suffer terribly, but according to the cross uh, reference to this, Mark 10, you're going to get spiritual brothers and sisters, which again we can testify to, and life everlasting. Go back to Matthew's Gospel please, and in Matthew chapter 20, uh, look at verse, let's see, Matthew chapter 20, Matthew 20, 20. Matthew twenty twenty. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshipping him, and desiring a certain thing of him. Could be the Lord's aunt, hence why she is going to intercede on behalf of her two sons. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand, and the other on the left in thy kingdom, millennial kingdom of course. But Jesus answered and said, You know not what ye ask. Are ye able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of, and to be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with? They say unto him, We are able, meaning we are prepared to die for you. We are prepared to be physically identified with you, martyred alongside you, and even with you. 23. He saith unto them, You shall indeed drink of my cup, and be baptised with the baptism that I am baptised with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared of my father. And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister." And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. It's, again, simple, it's self-explanatory. There's no Pope here. There's no one-man pastor. There's no boss, if you will, lording it over the brothers or the apostles. The Son of Man didn't come to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. And that needs to be reaffirmed time after time. That's why, if you are in a one-man church, you are not in a Christian church. From the same chapter, I jump down to verse 30, please. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. Once again, the common people appreciated him, recognised his deity, Didn't need to be schooled with Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic. Didn't need to go to Bible school to understand who the Lord Jesus Christ was. And they called him, O Son of David, O Lord, Thou Son of David, Messianic. And Jesus stood still and called them and said, What will ye that I shall do unto you? What do you want? How can I help you? They say unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. And immediately their eyes received sight. And they followed him. Physical, supernatural, we can spiritualize this to people that come to the Savior to be saved. I was once blind, but now I see. You are going to be given spiritual eyes. In fact, Paul, when he first got saved from Acts chapter 9, was knocked off his horse, and it speaks about him being blind for three days. Physically blind, of course, spiritually blind as well. And a man called Ananias was sent to. Pray over him to give him his eyesight back. And he walks in and he says, Brother Saul, and the reason why I want to uh, make that uh, comment, or just refer to that very briefly, is the fact that he was called brother before he was baptised. A lot of people think you can't be saved unless you are baptised. But their Saul was called brother before he was baptised, demonstrating that a baptism of any kind cannot save you. And if you think it can, you are greatly in error. Matthew 21, this will be the 29th, so we're almost at the end of the 30 miracles, so Matthew 21, and in verse 14, this will be the 29th public miracle, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. When the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying in the temple, and sang Hosanna to the son of David, they were so displeased, and said unto him... Hearest thou what these say? And Jesus saith unto them, Yea, have you ye never read, out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, that hast perfected praise. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Healings in the temple, healings out of the temple. He would spend a fair bit of his time in the temple and in synagogues in and around Israel. He wasn't completely uh, indifferent to such places. But later on, we are told that God doesn't dwell in temples made with hands. The time is going to come, John chapter 4, when you will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. A new covenant is about to take place. You won't need to go to the temple anymore. You won't need to go to the synagogue anymore. You won't have to sacrifice animals anymore. You won't have to watch what you eat. A new covenant, a new dispensation is on its way. And yet, for so many people, this just doesn't register. People think that they have to continue to do this and that, to do what is expected of them. And if they don't do what is expected of them, that somehow they are in error. Jump to chapter 26, please. And of course, this title, again, is called The Master, His Miracles and His Men. And in chapter 26, I want to focus on Peter. Sometimes Peter is a whipping boy. He can be uh, criticized by some people and commended by others. But he was only a man. He was no different to you and I. Yes, he would be shown the transfiguration. Yes, he would be given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, not God. But he wasn't sinless. He wasn't perfect. Matthew 26, look at verse 33, please. Jesus answered and said unto him, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. And he believed it. He thought to himself that when it came to the Lord being denied, there was no chance that he would be guilty of doing such an awful thing. He really believed it. He put his confidence in his flesh, a dangerous thing. And that's why I think when I read this piece of scripture, yeah, he believed that. He really believed it. 34. Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this night, before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Go back to chapter 16 again. Don't turn there, but just keep in your minds. Get thee behind me, Satan. Lord, you won't go up to Jerusalem. This isn't going to happen, so on and so forth. Get thee behind me, Satan. He looks Peter in the eyes, and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. Satan, of course, was speaking through Peter. Some people also think that that verse is a proof text for a saved person to be demon-possessed. I don't believe that. But they use that verse to suggest such a thing. I think it's more... Correct to exegete such a verse with Satan behind Peter. Maybe whispering into his ear. That's quite possible. But possession per se, I don't believe it. 35. Peter said unto him, Though I should die with thee, yet will I not deny thee. Likewise also said all the disciples. And they all believed it. No doubt about it. They all believed in their own minds that it would be impossible to deny him. And yet what would happen... They would all forsake him. John, the son of Zebedee, probably the youngest of the apostles, was the most faithful. And yet, even he, according to Matthew, Mark and Luke, would stand afar off. I think John's gospel, his own gospel, has him with Mary Mm -hmm. near the cross. But they all scarpered when the pressure kicked in. Going back to the fact that we all have two natures. From chapter 27... Uh, 27 look at verse uh, 27 look at verse 37 please then set up upon his head his accusation written this is Jesus the king of the Jews then were the two thieves crucified with him one on the right hand and the other on the left and then that passed by reviled him wagging their heads and saying thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days save thyself If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the King of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. They recognized that he was the miracle maker. They recognized that he was the King of Israel, and yet didn't believe it, had no interest, and would be blaspheming him right up until... The 11th hour. At this time, of course, you've got people that are failing him, his closest circle. The women, on the other hand, would remain faithful. And it's fair to say that most churches are run by women or attended by women. Women haven't got much authority in most churches, but they make up the numbers in the churches. Most women are very strong. It's the men that are weak, it's the men that are spineless, and therefore the women have to step forward and carry the men and the children. So I think we've covered quite a bit this evening and I'm just looking at my notes uh, to make sure that I haven't missed anything of great importance. We've looked at 29 miracles and like I said at the beginning of this five part message, there are 30 miracles. But I'm just thinking how much more time we've got left for tonight. I think I will close it there and come back tomorrow and... Look at the last miracle and type any loose ends and then that'll be the end of this six-part message i think so we'll close it there and come back to mine okay so this will be part six and i think this will be the final part looking at the master his miracles and his men and the initial plan had been to do this in three parts and it's gone over quite a bit but that's okay there's no rush when it comes to looking at the scriptures and reminding ourselves as to the miracles that the lord did and, like I say, when it comes to miracles, he was the man. Whatever he said, whatever he wanted to happen, it happened. Let there be light, and there was light. He would just speak a miracle, or he just speak something, and it took place. No ifs, no buts, it just happened. Because that, of course, is a picture of deity. So, last night, uh, we finished in Matthew 27, and we looked at verses 37 to 41 cast your eye or take your eye if you will take a look at verse 43 please from Matthew 27 he trusted in God let him deliver him now if he will have him for he said I am the son of God and every so often people come up to you and say but Christ never said I was the son of God I remember watching a nun on television some years ago and uh, she made the claim she's now an ex-nun that Jesus never said he was the son of God he said uh, he was the son of man but never once did he say that he was the Son of God. Incorrect. 40 times at last count, he would say in the four Gospels that he was the Son of God. 82 times he would say he was the Son of Man. He is the Son of Man, he is the Son of God. One more time, the Son of Man ties into the Kingdom of Heaven, whereas the Son of God ties into the Kingdom of God. And it just goes to show that people such as this ex-nun are very ignorant. In fact, just today we had uh, a couple of interesting conversations. One of the sisters was speaking to a Catholic lady and I think she was a convert to Catholicism and I was standing maybe 20 yards away observing the body language from this Catholic lady and she was very uh, critical not particularly nice to uh, speak to I would imagine and as always she made a lot of silly comments referring to Mary as the Blessed Virgin so on and so forth and the scripture says how Mary would rejoice in God her Saviour but of course such people are brain dead, dead from the neck up very much in love with the system 43 is of course coming from the words or coming from the mouth i should say of unsaved people he trusted in god let him deliver him now and if such were to happen we'd all be lost in our sins if he will have him what a thing to say for he said i am the son of god now if christ said it he said it and on this occasion they were right they didn't misquote him he would have said i'm the son of god he would have said i'm the son of man i'm the bread of life i am the eternal father Unless you believe I am, you will die in your sins. He said many things. And yet these words will come back to haunt them, no doubt, one day. But around this time, his apostles, his closest friends, have scattered, have departed from him. They've hit the ground because they were in fear of their lives, which goes back once again to the two natures in the believer. Sooner or later, if you are saved, you're going to be pushed. You'll be tempted. And if you like most people, you will fall. But as one, uh, as one old... Uh, preachers used to say you'll get into a situation you're rolled around in the mud for a while but you get back up and that's true you may roll for a while you may enjoy it for a while but you will get back up you will confess your sins and get back into fellowship with the lord go to matthew 26 please matthew 26 look at verse uh, 51 please and behold one of them which were with jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear one of them, which were with Jesus, stretched out his hand, Simon Peter, and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priests and smote off his ear. Now, if I know Peter, I think he was probably going for the man's head. Peter was a hothead. Peter was a good man. And yet from chapter 16, it uh, didn't take him long to rebuke the Lord. And that's why the Lord would say to uh, Simon Peter, get behind me, Satan. Satan, of course, was speaking probably into the ear of Simon Peter and he came up with that ridiculous statement, how you won't go to the cross, so and so forth. And here Peter wants to defend the Lord. He wants to defend his master. He means well, like most of us. We mean well. We get into conversations with people, and sometimes it gets a little hairy. I mean, we had a guy come up to us today as we were packing up, and he said our banner was uh, confrontational, not particularly caring, and how we should be doing more of this and more on that. And I said to him, but do you warn people about hell? And if you do, how do you do it? And he wouldn't answer me. And we had about 10 minutes spat going back and forth. And it got quite heavy. Patrick came over, and he was told to clear off. And then it was was made clear that, I think, an assault was in the pipeline, perhaps, if he didn't clear off. Mm -hmm. And I challenged this man, probably in his 40s, to show us some scripture where he was coming from, which, of course, he couldn't do. He's not saved. And after a while, I said to him, well, this book isn't for you, then. And I put the old Calvin line on him. This isn't for you. This is a message for those that are saved. You're not saved. But here, Simon wants to defend the Lord. He wants to defend his master. Understandable. Look at 52. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place. For all that take the sword shall perish with the sword. You take the sword, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. A great scripture to also point people to concerning capital punishment. Christ would make it clear that if you live by the sword, you died by the sword. You take a life, you lose a life. Paul would say the same from Romans chapter 13. When was the last time you ever heard this preached? When was the last time an Anglican vicar or a Catholic priest... Preach such a message. Most priests, most speakers today are pacifists, and yet for decades, for centuries, the Church of Rome murdered millions of people. Fifty-three. Think as thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. Just clip my fingers, and I got more than twelve legions of angels, thousands of angels, which will come to my aid if I was to call upon such And it goes back to Peter misunderstanding time after time the master's ministry. And this is a great truth that we all need to learn. 54. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? that Thus it must be. Now again, I think Peter was trying to do the right thing. He saw his master about to be taken by ungodly men, temple guards. He would see uh, Judas Iscariot, one of his friends, betraying him. And he thought to himself, I'm going to lay down my life. For the Lord, he said he would do. And he was prepared to get into an altercation, a duel. But Lord, the Lord said, no, that's not what I want. Because if you are successful in what you are attempting to do, there'll be no salvation. Look at 56. But all this was done, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. They all scarpered, foretold back in the Old Testament. And at that moment, it must have been a pretty dark time for the Lord. He would be sweating blood. He would be in great agony and pain. He knew that death was awaiting him. That in and of itself wasn't the problem. He was probably grieving over the fact that he'd become sin. He never knew sin, never had a bad thought, never failed his father a day in his life. He would walk on the water, and we've already read about that. He would raise the dead. He would give sight to the blind. He would give people's hearing back. He would cast out spirits. He would feed 25, 30, maybe 45,000 people. And yet, when push came to shove, they all deserted him. They ran for the hills, and that must have been pretty difficult for him to handle. He knew it was going to happen, of course, but nevertheless, when it comes, it's still a shock. But what's really going to pull him down is this sinless man becoming a sin offering. And the charismatics come along, and they say, well, what happened was Christ went to hell, was tortured by the devil, the devil owned him, as it were, and christ had to become born again the first born again man it wasn't enough that he died for our sins he had to become a sinner he had to become like we are and then become born again no he became a sin offering his soul was poured out he became a sin offering substitutionary atonement but he didn't become a sinner that needs to be made very very clear and that's why when you listen to people like joyce may and benny hinn and kenneth copeland You listen to imbeciles, just absolute morons, biblical illiterates. They don't know what they're talking about, not to mention they're guilty of blasphemy. But they've all fled, and now Christ is being detained, and he's going to be interrogated. Look at 58, please. But Peter followed him afar off under the high priest's palace and went in and sat with the servants to see the end. Now, Peter is in a difficult position. He made many promises that he wouldn't betray the Lord, and he meant it. And he hoped he'd be faithful unto the end. And yet when push came to shove, he failed. He failed numerous times in the Gospels. He would fail also in actually the Apostles. And I made the case some uh, parts ago, where he'd be arguing with the Lord about what he could or couldn't eat, what was unclean and clean. He would clash with Paul concerning the Antioch incident over in uh, Galatians chapter 2. He was a good man. But like James, the Lord's half-brother, he had two natures. He was proud He was a Jew of Jews, and yet he's weak. And here, he wants to stay close to the Lord. And he's found himself heading off to the high priest's palace, being Caiaphas. He goes in and sits down. And elsewhere it says how he'd warm himself. It was cold. And these accounts are fascinating to read. Very honest accounts. And of course, they were written to increase our faith. And they were written to also demonstrate that the best of the best were weak. And that's why it's somewhat of a joke when you put your faith in unsaved people. Even religious people, saved people, they're just people. So when people come up to us and say, you know, you need to do this, you need to do that, or I'm going to pray for you to go back to Mass tonight, who are they kidding? If they really believe that, go up and down your street, go into your local supermarket, go to your petrol station, or go to your neighbour's doors and say, listen, any Catholics in there, any back Catholics in there, get to Mass. Of course, they wouldn't do that, would they? No. But they come up to you in the street when you're taking a stand and lock horns with you. Pitiful, not to mention inconsistent. Jump over to 69, please. Now Peter sat without in the palace. And a damsel came unto him, saying, Thou also wast with Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus of Galilee, I should say. Peter is sitting without in the palace. He's outside in the palace. The palace grounds. And a damsel, a young girl, came unto him, saying, Thou also was with Jesus of Galilee. I've seen you. You are a Christian. You're one of his men. Seventy. But he denied before them all, saying, I know not what thou sayest. Wow. Seventy-one. And when he was gone out into the porch, another maid saw him and said unto them that were there, This fellow was also with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied with an oath. I do not know the man. He's now taken an oath. He's sworn by Almighty God that he doesn't know Christ, he was never there, I'm not a Christian, I'm just passing through, I'm cold, so and so forth. Now the sin sets in. Of course, there are going to be two incidents that take place this night. Judas will betray him, it's so already happened. He will go on to repent, but it's a, it's the wrong kind of repentance. His repentance is made to a priest, which results in being condemned, but his repentance is really sort of repentance which goes back to being sorry for being caught. Whereas Peter will repent not to a priest, but to a mighty God, and he's sorry for what he did. In fact, true repentance, uh, true classical repentance, is to be sorry for who you are, and what you are, not just what you did, or being caught, for what you have done. 73, And after a while, came unto him them they that stood by, and said to Peter, Surely thou art also one of them, for thy speech betrayeth thee. They would have had regional accents, in Israel, and I think from memory, Galilee, Nazareth, it's the north of Israel. And Jesus would have had some kind of a north accent or northern accent. The apostles would have had northern accents. They were looked down upon. Like in Britain, we have the north-south divide. The people in London look down on the people in Lancashire. And the people in Lancashire looked towards people in London as being stuck up, arrogant. So this individual has been able to spot Peter, not just visually, but by his speech, by his accent. We've got 74 Then began he to curse and to swear, saying, I know not the man, and immediately the cock crew. He's swearing, he's cursing. He's taking an oath, he's lying. He's a saved man. And people say, but if you sin willfully, after you get saved, there's no more sacrifice for sins, so on and so forth. And he put that scripture uh, to you and on you from the uh, book of Hebrews. But here you've got a saved man, sinning, blaspheming, cursing, and yet he will go on to be restored back into fellowship with the Lord. And Peter remembered the word of Jesus, who said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And he went out and wept bitterly. Tears unto repentance, tears of remorse. He's a broken man. Now he loved the Lord. He was a good man, as would be James and John. In fact, all of the apostles, including Thomas, who said, let us go and die with him. From John chapter 11. But they're just flesh and blood. They're just ordinary people like us. And every so often when we get pushed, when we get put in a corner, we mess up. We lose our tempers. I know I do. We have to control our tongues. Because once you shoot your mouth off, once you lose your, t- uh, your, your temper, once you lose your testimony, that's it. There's no way back. You're still saved, of course, but you've lost your credibility. Matthew 28. This will be the 30th miracle. Like I say, all the miracles have been public miracles. Public, visible miracles. Nothing done in secret. Nothing done in a corner. Miracles done out in the open. In the temple, in the highways, and the byways. Men, women, boys, girls. Jews, Gentiles, day and night. Made no difference to the Lord. You want to be healed? I'll heal you. You want to receive this? You've got it. You want to be saved? Here it is. I'm the bread of life. Come and eat me. So and forth. Matthew 28. Matthew 28. Look at verse 16, please. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and teach all nations. Baptise them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost teach them to observe all things whatsoever i've commanded you and lo i'm with you always even unto the end of the world amen you saw me you walked with me you dined with me you've seen me go into the tomb and now you've seen me come up out of the tomb but some doubted could be thomas i don't know but it goes back to honesty integrity The writers of the scripture are very honest. They could have taken it out. But they want you to know that some of them doubted. 11 disciples, 16. Judas, of course, is dead by now. He's gone to his place, Acts chapter 1. And off they go into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. Many meetings, many messages, many miracles took place on mountains. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Muslims say, but Jesus never said, worship me. He never discouraged it. He took the worship because he is almighty God. But some doubted. They needed to be reassured. Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power, all authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. I'm Lord of the the temple. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm Lord of the church. I'm also going to be the future King of Israel. Lord of Lords, King of Kings, Son of David. Go ye therefore... And teach all nations, don't keep this to yourself, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. A Trinitarian blessing. And the Trinity is a biblical teaching. Don't keep this to yourself. We've had so many people come up to us over the last week. What church do you go to? We go to this church. We go to that church. We are primitive Methodists. We keep the 39 articles of faith. We do this. We do that. Some well-meaning, of course. And yet, this is how I look at it. Oxford has a lot of homeless people, a lot of mentally disturbed people, a lot of demon-possessed people. And therefore, what I've noticed over the last week are people helping such individuals, could be religious people, could be saved people, but no one has been street preaching. No one has been in town every day. No one has had the banner up every day. No one has been giving out tracts and calling on people to repent, and also giving them free DVDs, so we can compensate for what the churches should be doing. In fact, most churches think that outreach is helping out homeless people. Here's a blanket, here's some food, here's this, here's that. But the secular groups do that. There are charities in the UK set up just for homeless people. They get state funding, they get tax breaks. But when it comes to preaching the gospel, when it comes to calling on sinners to repent, far and few between... Most people just don't do it. Teaching them to observe all things, whatsoever i commanded you, and know I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world, amen. What a great way to conclude Matthew's gospel. The Jews require a sign from First Corinthians, and if a Jew was to read this gospel, back in the first century, he or she would have read about thirty miracles, and if their hearts were right, they would have received this message with great joy. And they would have been over the moon. So all his disciples would witness the resurrection and his subsequent ascension. They would go on to write the New Testament and yet they would fall. They would make mistakes and the Lord is ever merciful, always compassionate, doesn't discard them, doesn't write them off. So 30 miracles for Matthew's gospel which works out to be 8.5 per year on average. But not always would it lead to people being saved. Also another miracle which we didn't look at which was, wasn't necessarily visible but would be, uh, would be written about later is how the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom picturing the end of the old covenant and picturing the commencement of the new covenant. But the miracles per se are here and we've been able to read them over the last uh, six sittings praise the Lord. I will just say one thing I, uh, very quickly if I may in fact if you turn to Luke chapter 9, and I mentioned this uh, a little while ago, uh, Luke chapter 9, we read about the sons of Zebedee, um, Luke chapter 9, look at verse 51 please, and it came to pass, and the time has come, that he should be received up, he stepped fast, he said his face, to go to Jerusalem, as it meshes before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him some kind of an advanced party. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. There's a great picture of free will and the sovereignty of the Lord. Salvation is about to be offered, but here they're not wanting to receive what is about to come their way. 54. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord... Wilt thou, that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? That's the old nature. Call fire down from heaven, Lord. Burn them up. Go back to Jonah again. Those filthy Gentiles, pagan worshippers, devil worshippers, unclean, uncircumcised. Let them go to hell, Lord. He said, you will go and preach to the Ninevites," And he was forced to go. And he preached to them. And it says they got saved. And here, in the back of James and John's mind, it's the same kind of thing. Burn them up, Lord. They're not worthy of this great message. And every so often, we see people in the street who give us an evil look, a high look. They try and avoid us. They try and intimidate us. They try and attack us verbally. They try and get in our space. But by and large, it's apathy that we're up against in the UK. And every so often, that can get you hard. It can make you bitter if you're not careful. And here, the Apostle's on the cusp of making a huge mistake. 55. But he turned and rebuked them and said... You know not what manner of spirit you're of. Almost goes back to Peter being tempted or influenced by the devil to put doubt. Not just in the mind of the, of the master, but in the mind of the apostles. To somehow cause a split in the apostles. Or split with the, with the master and the apostles. And here he says, you don't know what spirit you're of. You're not infallible. You think you know it all, but you're still growing. 56. For the son of man is not come to destroy men's lives to save them and they went to another village so straight away you know that the crusades were not of the lord the inquisition was not of the lord john calvin's police state was not of the lord bullying people to get saved is not of the lord in fact i saw a sermon online a couple of weeks ago an interesting message and right at the end of the message the preacher spent eight nine ten minutes almost begging people to come forward and he's saying, you will get saved. Come and get saved. And he got off the, the, uh, the platform, walked down to the back of the church, and the cameras were following him. Kind of eerie, I thought, to watch. He said, you saved, brother? Are you saved, brother? Are you saved, brother? How about you? Are you saved? Really up close in people's faces. I thought, there's no need for that. You preach the gospel. And if they get saved, do they get saved? If they don't get saved, so be it. But here they want to destroy such people. And Christ says, listen, I haven't come to destroy men's lives. That's the second coming. But to save them, being the first coming, and they went to another village. It's like that old expression, there's many more fish in the sea. If you come up against a brick wall, you go somewhere else. There's always more to do. Jump over to John chapter ten and I will close. John chapter ten. And the whole point of this six-part study has been to look at the master, his miracles, and his men. And maybe the next time I'll look at the women as well in more detail. But as the men I mentioned more than the women. It was more appropriate and uh, easier for me to focus on the main. Uh, John chapter 10. John chapter 10. uh, Look at verse 38, please. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works, believe the miracles, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. You don't believe what I say? You don't believe what I do? Believe on the miracles. Start with the miracles. It's a good starting point. Just start with the miracles, and the Lord will grow you. Jump over to chapter 14, and I will close now. keep saying that, but I will. John chapter 14, uh, John chapter 14, look at verse 11, please. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. The miracles speak for themselves. There's just no way in the world the devil could do this kind of thing. Yes, the false prophets will do miracles, and the tribulation... Yes, the Antichrist will do miracles in the tribulation, but that's for a very limited period of time. And those miracles are aimed at the goats. Those miracles are aimed at unsaved people. Those that are saved are saved and kept saved, which of course feeds into eternal security. Here, these miracles were open, and here, these miracles were allowed to take place for the glory of God, uh, to affirm the Messiah's credentials, and to increase the faith of his ministers, his disciples, his followers. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. A great verse for the deity of Christ. Or else, believe me, for the very works' sake. You start there with the works. Start there, believe on the works. It's a good starting point, and he will grow you from there. And on that note, I think I will sign out and conclude on this very uh, blessed And interesting study, which I've enjoyed doing, focusing on the Master, his miracles, and his men.